Starling Marte ahead of Mookie Betts for the second half? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 8th. It's show number 32 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN about his second-half rankings, how fantasy owners misuse WOBA, his studs and duds, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Matt Harvey, Jose Reyes, Wilmer Flores, and several players who aren't Mets. And from the American League with Jock Thompson looking at Wade Davis, Jordan Zimmerman, and new Red Sox utility man Aaron Hill. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Tigers AA closer Joe Jimenez. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at possible trade deadline fallout in San Diego and Oakland. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Will Middlebrooks of the Brewers and Ray Black, a relief pitcher in San Francisco. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at four matchups, including struggling Oakland rookie left-hander Sean Manea in Houston to square off against struggling Astros righty Dallas Koichel. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about Ryan Quality Starts Revisited. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The All-Star break is right around the corner. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. There's a risk that our uh, National League Market Watch here at Baseball HQ Radio this week is going to sound like a New York Mets report, but that's where the news is, and that's where we got to go. And the first news, not good at all for Mets fans, for baseball fans really, but especially for Matt Harvey owners. He's been diagnosed with a serious shoulder problem and uh, looks like surgery. This could be very, very serious, Nick. Could be extremely serious surgery for for Matt Harvey. It looks like the symptoms, at least, are consistent with thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, and if he has, has surgery for that, it probably is season-ending. I saw one speculation that that could be career-ending surgery. Uh, he's he's also considering now what could be done without surgery. So, uh, kind of in the middle of things right now with with Matt Harvey. Uh, certainly a great pitcher, and we'll hope for the best for him uh, as he tries to sort through this injury situation. If we assume that the news is as bad as they say and that surgery is required, as you said, he's definitely out for the rest of the year. How does that affect the Mets rotation? Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think they'll they'll wait and see where they are. At this point, Logan Verrett looks like the um, uh, the playing time gainer in the short term. Um, so uh, he's made five starts, first with a PQS4, but the last ones are a PQS2 and three PQS ones. So not the kind of person you want to insert in your rotation. Harvey owners probably need to be looking elsewhere. 
Uh, and in fact, if Harvey is, uh, if, if it is a season ending kind of thing for Harvey, the Mets may be looking elsewhere as well. When you say looking elsewhere, do you mean their minor league system or are they going to be forced into the trade market? They might even be forced into the trade market. I, they, you know, they've, they've got some, had some good arms in the minor league system, but I think most of them come up. So uh, they're going to have to sort of look at how they can fill a huge hole in their rotation for the remainder of the season. If you're tempted to look at Verrett for uh, Saturday's game, July the 9th, against the Washington Nationals, he has a 627 expected ERA and a 150 whip against them so far this season, according to Phil Hertz of BaseballHQ.com. So even in the short run, he doesn't look like much of an option. No, I don't think so. Not a guy I would be putting in for uh, based on this, uh, this Saturday's upcoming start. Well, naturally, we wish... Uh, Matt Harvey, all the best, but I have to say the news does not sound good. That's a very serious condition in the shoulder and, of course, shoulder injuries, if possible, even worse than the elbow injuries insofar as uh, elbow injuries are, are more repairable in the longer run and shoulder injuries tend to be much more problematic. It's really bad news. Uh, also with the Mets, Jose Reyes acquired from Colorado, of course, recently uh, started his first game on Tuesday. He's had three games with the Mets. How do things look so far? I, not too good. Um, at this point, uh, Jose Reyes is three for thirteen. He's had one home run, has one RBI, uh, two thirty-one batting average. Uh, you know, you, you've got to. Jose Reyes is certainly a great name, but you've got to remember that this guy is getting older. He's thirty-three now. Uh, he, he's had uh, s- significant health issues over the last couple of seasons. Um, so I, I really question whether he's going to make much of an impact in the middle of the Mets lineup. In, in the Mets lineup, in the middle infield, I. I just don't see a lot of that happening. I think they've got better options over there. Well, even though he's not a fantasy stud, last year he was a $20 value because of the 24 stolen bases, and the Mets don't steal a lot. They're only 29th out of 30 teams in the big leagues in stolen bases. So the question is, are the Mets not stealing because they don't have a Jose Reyes, or will Jose Reyes not be stealing because it's not part of what the Mets do? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. My, you know, my guess is he's not going to have a... Uh, I have a green light, certainly, with the Mets because they, they simply don't do that. He might certainly add some of that, uh, that element to the Mets, to the Mets lineup, but, um, not going to, probably not going to rack up, uh, 15 stolen bases in the second half. We're projecting four steals for Reyes over the rest of the way. When the Mets acquired him and sent him down to the minors to tune up, he was only playing third base. Can we assume that that's going to be where he plays with the Mets, or is he going to get some time elsewhere in the infield, or maybe even in the outfield? It's, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to say. We're projecting about 35% playing time at third base, so uh, we're, we're seeing him as a part-time third baseman, uh, certainly in New York, rather than, uh, than playing uh, elsewhere. So uh, how does this affect uh, Wilmer Flores? I know that the staff survey at BaseballHQ.com in the GM's office this week has a bunch of questions about guys that uh, the various members of the staff think will be playing, won't be playing, will you know continue with their hot starts or not, all these kind of things. And one of the questions is, who gets more at-bats, Wilmer Flores or Jose Reyes? And the BaseballHQ.com staff writers seem to think it's Flores by about a 2-to-1 vote. Yeah, and I, I think it'll be Flores too, in part because Flores plays can play more positions than than Reyes. We've got uh, Flores projected as thirty five percent at third base, but also playing shortstop and first base and second base. So, various ways that Flores can get that they can get Flores at bat into the lineup, which uh, of course is something they're definitely going to want to do. I mean, we're looking at Flores have Flores is at five home runs over the past week. So, uh, you know, this is a guy whose who's bat is worth something. Uh, may struggle a bit uh, with his uh, defensively. But um, you, you've got to get that kind of a bat into your lineup. 
Well, um, there was some speculation that what we saw on July the 5th, which was uh, Tuesday, and uh, Jose Reyes' first night back in the lineup, he started at third base. Flores started at second. Neil Walker on the bench. I don't think Walker's going to miss that much time. They need Walker in there as well. Yeah, they do too. So, I, you know, my guess is that Reyes is the playing time loser in all of that situation. Uh, they've got some pieces to move around in the infield, but uh, I, don't th- I don't see Flores losing, uh, losing playing time to Jose Reyes. Uh, Flores, uh, according to BaseballHQ.com's Playing Time Today feature on this uh, story, had a two sixty four expected batting average, which is okay, but a one thirty seven expected power index, which is really good over the last 31 days. So as you said, he's really the hot hand of the, of the group. Yeah, very definitely the hot hand at the moment. And so, uh, but, but overall, certainly a, a, a very good power index for Flores as well. Um, he's displayed that power in the past, and, and we may be seeing a little bit of a bump. The guy's only 24 years old, and uh, you certainly expect to see some growth at that age. And it's not like Jose Reyes is uh, such a significant glove man that his defensive prowess is going to earn him any extra playing time as well. Uh, over in St. Louis, more bad injury news. Probably their, or arguably their best offensive player, Matt Carpenter. A grade two strain of the oblique. Looks like he's out for a while, Nick does look like he'll be out certainly well into August, and so that's going to shuffle a lot of things in the middle infield. Uh, 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 there's the, 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 again, the, the Cardinals have a bunch of pieces they can move around uh, in an attempt to cover in the middle infield, but uh, uh, they're certainly not going to replace Matt Harvey. That's a serious injury situation and uh, will we'll hurt the Cardinals down the stretch and a, a lot of managing to going on in terms of, of day-to-day starting uh, choices in the middle infield. Well, who are some of those choices? How are they going to move those pieces around? I see on the list of playing time effects at BaseballHQ.com's playing time today. Story on this, I see Matt Carpenter plus four other names. Carpenter losing a lot of playing time and four guys gaining. Yeah, four guys gaining playing time with Carpenter out. Colton Wong certainly is, a, is one of, the, uh, one of the, the biggest names in that uh, regard simply because of his potential. He's not had that good of a start to the season. One home run, three stolen bases, hitting two thirty-seven. Uh, but we're we're projecting that uh, Colton Wong could have got two hundred at bats over the second half, three homers, six stolen bases, two fifty batting average, right about a ten dollar ball player. So uh, Colton Wong could be could could gain, and there's certainly some uh, some skill level there that could bump those numbers up a bit for Colton Wong. So that's probably for me. I think the number one kind of gainer out of all of this. Uh, Greg Garcia is also likely to see a, a bump in playing time. Um, I, don't, I don't have as much as much uh, excitement about Greg Garcia, certainly, as I do Colton Wong. Uh, at this point, two homers, one stolen base, uh, has been uh, sustaining a, a huge batting average because of a 41% hit rate. But uh, we're looking at Greg Garcia over the second half as one homer, two stolen bases, 241 batting average, a $2 ball player. So, uh, certainly the guy to target in that infield is Colton Wong in this injury situation. Looks like with Colton Wong moving in to take more time at second, he had been playing some outfield. Randall Grichuk looks like a playing time gainer as well. Is that interesting to you? It is indeed. I mean, Grichuk is certainly a, uh, uh, he'll get some playing, some additional playing time perhaps in the outfield and, and bump some things up a bit. The problem, of course, with Grichuk is uh, we, you, we've got excellent power. We know that nine homers at this point, but only a 222 batting average. And uh, we're currently projecting nine homers the rest of the way. If you get that batting average up around 250, that makes a lot of sense. If it stays around 220, uh, that could be a real drag on things. So 
Uh, XBA at the moment is 241. So Gritchick is a guy that could that could add some value and see some certainly see some additional playing time. Staying in St. Louis briefly, a couple of weeks ago, Nick, uh, we were talking about a Doug Dennis bullpen column that suggested Shung Hwan Oh in the Cardinals bullpen might step up and take over as the closer based on skills, and uh, lo, it has come to pass. It has come to pass. Doug Dennis has done it again, uh, and, and Shung Hwan Oh now is the closer in St. Louis. And, you know, this guy has been pitching so well. I, you know, in a couple of leagues that I'm in, the Rosenthal owners are thinking that Rosenthal may come back, but... Uh, if you look at what Chung Wan Oh is doing at the moment, a 161 earned run average, 0.86 whip. He's converted his uh, converted his first two save opportunities. I don't see him letting go of that closer role anytime soon. He had a good record uh, in Korea with uh, with closing games. Uh, this guy has got experience and uh, apparently has the guile to do it. So Chung Wan Oh could uh, be in for the long term. In Korea, didn't they call him the Stone Buddha and the uh, the Iron Faced Killer and all these kind of nicknames that suggest that had some wonderful names for him in, in Korea, and so we may be hearing those those in the news media a lot more often now. I uh, um, uh, I you know I, I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if Chung Wan Oh hung on for the rest of the season. In the uh, analysis of it, Phil Hertz at BaseballHQ.com suggested that maybe Kevin Segrist could pitch a, in a few safe situations with left-handers uh, due because of his relatively high dominance rate, 9.8 strikeouts per nine, and a nice 3.3 command ratio, 3.3 strikeouts for every walk, 108 base performance value. That's really good, and uh, and we're not really giving Segrist a lot of credit for potential saves down the stretch, and we haven't zeroed out Trevor Rosenthal yet either. No, we haven't. I mean, it's certainly possible the Rosenthal could come back, and he's, um, uh, you know, he's got a good uh, a good track record certainly uh, as the closer in St. Louis this season. So you know, it's one of those things where where uh, maybe at the first stumble, Rosenthal will be given an opportunity again. Uh, if I were Rosenthal, it's not something I'd be counting on. But I'd be finding some other way to shore up my save situation. And finally, Nick, uh, in Pittsburgh, the long-awaited arrival of Tyler Glasnow, starting pitcher. He was called up, started a game on Thursday. How'd he go? You know, Tyler Glasnow started on Thursday. If you look at the, at the overall line, it's not too bad. 5.1 innings, four in runs, uh, five strikeouts, two walks, and really only allowed, uh, only allowed five base runners, three hits, two walks, four in runs. And some of that was the result of the bullpen. Uh, uh, Caminero came in and gave up a home run and allowed two of Glasnow's runners to score. So uh, Glasnow really pitched pretty well for for an opening outing in the major leagues. Also, I noticed that the first run he gave up in the big leagues uh, of the four that he allowed was a fairly weird and unusual combination. He allowed a triple, then had a wild pitch to allow the run to score. The wild pitch sounds like maybe nerves or excitement or adrenaline or something like that. And as he gets a bit more experience, you might expect that uh, the wild pitches will come down. But Nick, uh, the problem with Tyler Glasnow as a prospect and looking ahead to his immediate future, especially in the big leagues, is going to be control. It is indeed. He's got to get. He's got to get better control. That's the thing that probably has kept him in the minors as long as it has. There's no doubt that he has the pitches. He gets the strikeouts, but he also walks a lot of guys. And uh, you know, our, our our minor league analysts early in the season were were comparing Glasnow in some ways to a guy named Randy Johnson that some folks may remember, who had the same a similar situation when he first came up. Randy Johnson just uh, walked way too many guys, and it took him a while to get out of those control issues and that brought once he, he stopped putting guys on base via the base on balls his era came way down and we got the elite pitcher that uh, 
that we all remember and love. So Glasnow is certainly in that, uh, perhaps in that same school, in that same line of development, but it may be a while before he's able to, uh, uh, to produce the number one kind of pitcher status that we, we think he has. Well, Walks were a bugaboo in the minor leagues as well. In Indianapolis uh, this year and last, he was up around five walks per nine innings, just short of that mark, which is not good. Of course, he's striking out a ton of guys around 11 per nine, but that leaves his uh, strikeout-to-walk command ratio just down around two. And nowadays, especially, Nick, that's not going to cut it in the big leagues, especially if you're looking at a guy to be some kind of ace. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've, you know, we, we used to think two was, was, was decent. We've raised our standard on that, and I think rightly so. And so... He's going to have to do better in terms of the uh, the number of walks he issues. And when you look at that, even, you know, this guy strikes out a whole lot of people. So if command ratio is two, he's also walking a whole lot of people. But historically, not giving up a lot of home runs. His minor league mark is uh, 0.4 home runs per nine innings, which is really uh, excellent. I'm going to write off that uh, first home run in the big leagues to nerves and uh, maybe a little bit of trying too hard. And I'm really looking forward to his next start uh, after the All-Star break. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, Tyler Glasner was a guy that I would love to have on my roster. And uh, as we, as I've said, you know, not sure how we'll do the rest of this season. But if you're in a keeper league, Tyler Glasner is a guy to grab and hang on to. Yeah, a guy to target in trade if you're in a keeper league, especially because uh, if the person who does have him happens to be a front runner, may not be able to afford the risk of Tyler Glasnow's walks and the, and the difficulty that he might encounter. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Have a, a great all-star break, and we'll talk to you again next Friday. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. We're going to be talking a lot about pitching today and uh, mostly about injuries, unfortunately. We've had a lot of critical pitching, disabled lists, uh, placements for American League contenders, and perhaps uh, some teams are going to try to take advantage of this four days off from the All-Star break. Uh, first, let's talk about Kansas City. Their excellent closer, Wade Davis, has been DL'd with what the team calls a forearm injury, but they're denying that it's a flexor a flexor pronator injury, which is good news because that means it's less likely to be a Tommy John type of thing. Alex Becky looked at this story in playing time today, last week. As I said, Kansas City downplaying it, but this doesn't sound really great to me. What's your take on the situation, and what's your take on the fantasy impact? Well, as Alex noted, KC sounds pretty certain that Davis uh, is going to return shortly after the break uh, uh, this coming week, likely Saturday, July 16th, after he's first uh, eligible. There's no official timetable, but if so, it's good news for the Royals because their overall pitching depth isn't enough to buffer losing Davis for any length of time. Um, one interesting thing here, and I'm not sure what it means, if anything, um, but Davis is still getting good swinging strikes and his velocity is good, but his strikeouts per nine is way down from recent seasons. He's down to 8.6 per game, and it's been dropping like a stone through these first three months. His velocity's fine. I don't know whether it means anything or not, uh, you can't quibble with the bottom line. He's got a sub-2 ERA in every month. Um, but still, you, you, you have to wonder, and, and I hate injuries like this, because if you own Davis, it's going to add a certain amount of uncertainty into your future equation. And uh, I had heard that they were going to promote Kelvin Herrera from the setup role to the closer role, and uh, maybe Joaquin Soria moves up, Luke Hocaver moves up, and so forth. But when I was uh, listening to a Blue Jays game just the other night, uh, the 
Kansas City was in a position where they needed a ninth inning guy, and it wasn't Herrera. Herrera came in in the eighth and actually blew the save and cost them a victory. So is it likely more likely now to think of Soria, or is it more likely to think of Herrera? Are they going to mix and match? What's the story? Yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to even try to read Kansas City's minds, but if you if you just look at the numbers, Herrera is the is the logical guy that most baseball managers and analysts would pick to take over the, the ninth inning. Uh, he's got a 1.82 ERA. He's striking out almost 12 hitters per nine innings and less than two walks per nine. Um, I would say grab him if he's still available in your league, although it's not likely that he's available. It doesn't matter what kind of depth you have. He's a very good relief pitcher. Um, well, Kim Sari is another interesting name. Should Davis miss extended playing time? Obviously, he has the experience, even though he's not the same guy he once was. He's still reasonably effective, and and Luke Kochivar as well, uh, another interesting name, um, but but not in the uh, uh, Kelvin Her- Kelvin Herrera uh, mode. I wonder if Ned Yost is going to be one of these managers, and he has tended to be somewhat old-fashioned in some respects, and he's going to look at his bullpen and say, Soria has the experience, therefore Soria gets the role. He may not have the skills he once had. He certainly doesn't have the skills Kelvin Herrera has, as you mentioned, but there's a path to playing time for Joaquin Soria as well as the closer, is there not? Yeah, there is, and that's a real good point on the the whole experience closer thing. Um, Soria's ERA is pretty decent this year. I think it's around 3.2, 3.3. He's got a little bit of a a gap between that and his expected ERA, which is near 4, but uh, experience counts with some of these guys, and, uh, and who knows? We should say that the uh, Royals also promoted Brooks Pounders from the uh, AAA Omaha team. That's uh, Pounders was an all-star in the PCL, and he's a 4-1, 280 guy in 19 relief appearances, but we don't suspect that Brooks Pounders is going to be pitching any ninth innings, do we? No, not really. I mean, it, when if you're talking about experience, he's just the opposite. Uh, a lot of inexperience there, so I wouldn't think that Kansas City, who's still contending in the AL Central, is going to thrust him into that ninth inning role. In Detroit, their rotation was hit with a double dose of DL bad news. Jordan Zimmerman goes on the DL with a neck problem, and then uh, Daniel Norris, I think they were counting on to fill some of those innings, landed on the DL his first start uh, after Zimmerman went on the DL, so there's trouble in Motor City. Yeah, uh, Zimmerman has a neck strain, and, and kind of like Davis in Kansas City, it sounds like the Tigers are downplaying it. Uh, it's sounds like he should return shortly. Zimmerman hasn't been pitching too well lately. So again, it's it's a little bit of a concern. If you look at his year-to-date numbers, his 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 strikeouts per nine are way down from 7.3 last year to 5.6 this year. Velocity's down a tick. Uh, all of his other numbers look decent, but that 3.95 ERA is a lot higher than we've come to expect uh, from him. Especially after his hot start. Uh, what about uh, Daniel Norris? Yeah, you know, Norris is one of those guys I've always liked, but he's always been a bit injury prone. He looked like he was starting to come around in the minors, but he has an oblique strain, and that even concerns me more than uh, Zimmerman's neck injury. Because we both know that oblique strains can take a little while. There are there are varying degrees of those, and he could be out for a while. They're not saying much on him. The worst part about all of this is that now the Tigers, who are who are still in contention in the in the AL Central, I think they're three or four games under uh, under 500. They've got to fill the last three spots in their bullpen with guys who have ERAs either near five or over five. Names like Anibal Sanchez, who who's been horrible this year. Uh, Mike Pelfrey, ERA near five, Shane Green and Matt Boyd. So if they can do it, I'm pretty sure the Tigers are looking for pitching help on the free agent or on the trade market before the, uh, the deadline, the July 31st deadline. I wonder, uh, boy, it doesn't, when you look at that Tigers, uh, 
farm system. It doesn't look like they have a great deal to offer anybody in, a, in an exchange for a quality starting pitcher of the kind they need. But as you said, despite pretty spotty pitching, even counting Jordan Zimmerman this year, they're not completely out of it. you got to assume that Cleveland's going to come back to earth, and all of a sudden that American League Central looks like it could be a real uh, a wild goose chase in the second half. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. You're right. I don't think Detroit has a lot that's MLB-ready. They do have some talent in the, in the lower uh, regions of their farm. But, I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, Ray Murphy and Brent Hershey and I were having this discussion in a uh, a speculator column that uh, that's going to be published probably over the weekend. Um, Detroit's one of those teams, they don't have a big lead. Um, they can't afford to empty their farm, or they don't have a lead at all. In fact, they're, they're fighting for a wild card berth right now, at least behind Cleveland. They've got serious pitching issues. I can't see them emptying the farm for a win-now situation, uh, but they will try to chip away at the edges and try to find uh, some pitching that will help them because their pitching is looking awfully frayed around the edges. Yeah, Detroit's currently sitting six and a half back of Cleveland in the Central, and they're two games out in the wild card, so they, I think they must believe with their offense that they have a chance to compete for a playoff spot, and that should encourage them to do something. But again, my question's going to be the same thing. Who do they trade to whom for what? Because they just don't seem to have that much to offer. Another team that probably thinks of itself as being in the playoff hunt is Seattle. They had a really good start, and uh, for a while they were neck and neck in the American League West. Now they've fallen behind Houston. They're all nine and a half back, I think, of Texas, and uh, they're they're really struggling. And then they get some unfortunate DL news pitcher wise, and that is Taiwan Walker's going to the DL with tendonitis in his foot. Yeah, Taiwan's been fighting this thing since May. He had a, a, a very tough May. He had a very good June pitching through it, uh, and all of a sudden he had a setback last start, and they put him on the DL. I'm not sure whether they're trying to take advantage of the um, uh, of the break and give him some extra rest with this DL, how serious this is, but he's been pitching through it, so it's not going away. And uh, like I kind of noted in my last um, um, AL playing time tomorrow piece, the Seattle rotation is not in a good way. They're expecting uh, King Felix back uh, after the All-Star break. Felix should help, although, as everybody knows who's followed him, he's not quite the same pitcher he used to be. Um, everybody else in that rotation is 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 really hit or miss. Uh, James Paxton has been pretty decent since his call-up. His ERA is under four. But you've got guys like Wade Miley, whose ERA has been above five all year. Hisashi Iwakuma, who hasn't been the same pitcher he's been in the past. His ERA has been in the mid-fives. They've now got guys like Wade LeBlanc in the rotation. I don't know how long that's going to last. Mike Montgomery is going to make a spot start for uh, for Taiwan. Um, he's actually been pretty good out of the pen, but as we all know, he's, he's had uh, less than uh, average results out of the rotation. Seattle is in between a rock and a hard place right now. Like Detroit, I wouldn't be surprised to see them trying to kick the, uh, the around-the-edges market uh, for pitchers uh, before uh, July 31st. We should also mention Nate Carnes, who was something of a, a fantasy touts darling coming into the year, kind of a sleeper pick. Uh, he's a 4.57 ERA type guy, 144 WHIP. So he he hasn't been good as a fantasy pitcher, hasn't really been good as a major league pitcher, but looks like he's going to be pitching. Yeah, Carnes actually had a good f first couple of months. The problem was that his control went south in uh, in June, and he got removed from the rotation for LeBlanc. Um, 
Carnes, Carnes, I think, gave up almost seven walks per nine inning in June, and uh, and uh, Seattle management's got service over there. Just I don't think he felt like he could trust him anymore. But I think you're right. I think Carnes is going to get another shot at the rotation. Nine point six strikeouts per nine. No, that's going to give him uh, at least some excuse to put Nate Carnes back in the rotation for the time being. But yeah, that walk rate is all the way up over four per nine for the season. Uh, more bad news. Uh, there doesn't seem like there's any good news in any of this situation for Seattle. And uh, I wonder at, at some point if they're going to say uh, enough is enough. They they can't catch up with this level of pitching. Yeah, they really look a lot like Detroit. If you look at their minor league, they, they have some interesting names down in the lower echelons. Nobody that can help a club, a, a, a contender immediately that with with whom they, uh, they might be um, talking trade with. Um, I think, again, like Detroit, uh, they will – they will look around the edges to see if they can find pitching help. I'm not sure it's going to show up for them. A team that is definitely in the playoff hunt and doesn't really need any help is the Toronto Blue Jays. They're just two games behind Baltimore in a Wild West kind of thing in the AL East. Uh, they've lost a pitcher, though, in Marco Estrada, sent to the DL with some problems in his lower back. Estrada had a cortisone shot over the weekend, still didn't feel right, so Toronto, I think, has decided to take advantage of the All-Star break, put him on the DL. He'll only miss a start or two. But there are ramifications here if Estrada does not recover. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Drew Hutchinson had a very good first game back, so that's encouraging news for Toronto. And like you said, the lead that they have in the AL East helps them as opposed to some of the other teams that we've mentioned here. Um, they're probably going to revisit Aaron Sanchez's purported bullpen move. I think uh, you watching them realizes as much as anyone, Sanchez has just been terrific. He seems to get better with every start, and he's pitching deep into games. Um, I, I, you know, the one thing, if Toronto does have a weakness, it is pitching depth. Um, um, who else would they consider? They've got Hutchison maybe as, as the backup plan. What about Jesse Chavez? He was a decent starter for Oakland the past two years, but he always seemed to wear down at the end of the season. I noted in one of my columns last week, he hasn't had many innings, and I, I know Toronto needs him in the bullpen, but would they consider moving him back into the rotation? Oh, at this stage, I don't imagine there's nobody they wouldn't think about. Uh, uh, Chavez has been playing a pretty useful role for them in the in the bullpen as a kind of a seventh inning guy. Uh, Drew Storm has been a big disappointment. They brought him in, of course, as uh, supposed to be uh, competing for the closer role, and they really sank like a rock. So everybody moved up a step. Uh, I don't know. It, it puts them in a very difficult situation if they take Chavez out of the bullpen. Then what happens? I mean, you got to have all your bases covered, and with uh, Estrada going. Going on the DL, Gavin Floyd, another pass starter who is doing okay as a reliever. He's on the DL. Um, Hutchison, I think Hutchison's the obvious guy for now. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Again, um, uh, 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 different from from Seattle and Detroit and uh, who is the other team we talked about at the top, Kansas City. The thing that Toronto has going for them is that big lead. and It's not that big lead. What is it, four or five games right now in the AL East? They're two games behind Baltimore. Okay, they're two games behind, so they're not they're not that far back, but they don't have a lead. But they do have, like the other AL clubs, they have pitching woes, and this is some of the things. This is something that Ray and uh, and Brent and I were discussing. There is not a lot of trade available pitching. You wonder who's going to go out there and break the bank for that good starter, that uh, that Julio uh, Tehran deal, or try to get Rich Hill from the A's. Uh, not a lot of names out there. It'll be interesting to see who moves by the trade deadline. 
I can tell you that every fan of the Blue Jays anywhere would love to see Julio Terran come up and pitch for the Blue Jays. And Toronto does have a few bullets to fire in their minor league system, not of the caliber that uh, might get you a Julio Terran, but you can certainly hope so. Uh, in fact, at this point, they're a one-game leader in the wild card race, so I guess they're going to try to do something. I still think they believe they can catch Baltimore. I don't think anybody believes in Baltimore either. So I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see, but lots of movement coming, I suspect, Jock. Lots of uh, maybe league transfers and those kind of things. It'll make for an interesting second half. Yeah, and again, you just touched on another team that really needs pitching, and that's Baltimore. So a lot of these contenders, almost in the American League, pretty much everybody who's contending, not named Cleveland, is going to be looking for pitching. And Jock, speaking of trades, we've had one, not exactly a blockbuster, Boston trading for Aaron Hill from Milwaukee for a couple of minor leaguers. Um, I guess we thought that if the Red Sox made any kind of a deal, it'd be for a pitcher, and that's not the case. So what do you think the Red Sox are thinking with this deal, and how should fantasy owners respond to the presence of Aaron Hill in the Red Sox roster? Well, actually, this is act, this is the kind of deal I actually thought the Red Sox might make. They actually have a problem here. I mean, it's 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 overshadowed by by their pitching needs, but they have a problem nonetheless. Um, Travis Shaw at the moment has a left foot contusion. We're not sure how he's how long he's going to be out. Uh, it might be just a temporary injury. But the bigger problem is is that Shaw hasn't been hitting lefties this year, and and Aaron Hill is having a, a terrific year, a bounce back year. He's uh, he's hit. Uh, 283 uh, with a 359 on base and a 429 uh, uh, slugging percentage. And Milwaukee, being a non-contender, pretty much gave him away to Boston. So it's a little move. It helps Boston uh, with their offense, something you wouldn't think they need help with. But it, again, if you don't have pitching, you got to do whatever you can, particularly, particularly, and I emphasize this, if you don't have to give up the organization to get it. Now, Boston's one of those teams that has enough to get Julio Tehran, but when you look at their situation, they're three, four games out of uh, out of first place right now. I can't see them trading Yon Mancada or some of their other big organizational names for a chance at winning today. Uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. They need pitching just as bad as anybody does. It's an interesting move, one of those kind of at-the-margins thing. I don't suspect the Red Sox are done, or at least I don't think they're done trying at any rate. They still do need some kind of pitching, like everybody. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that's the name of the game in the AL East and in the AL West. Uh, it will be interesting to see if if some of those teams don't come calling for Cleveland, because Cleveland actually has a few minor league starting pitchers that, uh, like Mike Clevenger, for example, that they're not using right now, and Cleveland could use, for example, uh, you know, somebody at, at third base, maybe a little bit of outfield help. Uh, who knows? It's going to be interesting these last uh, two, three weeks of July. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jock. I understand you're off to San Diego for some all-star activity. Yeah, uh, Brent Hershey's going to uh, finally take me up on my offer to uh, come and visit me in Southern California. He's picked some good timing. Uh, the Dodgers are in town in L.A., and, of course, we got the Futures game on Sunday. We're going to be attending both. It's going to be fun. Uh, I've seen the future get Futures game before here in Anaheim. Um, it'll be fun um, um, with a, a media credential this time. Uh, obviously, we're going to be working. We're going to be putting together a column on it, uh, too. But it'll be a lot of fun seeing a lot of people that I – that I know from first pitch, uh, a lot of people who don't live in California, my media and, uh, and writer friends will be out there from USA Today and other publications, and also meeting some of the people that I've dealt with via email and Facebook and Twitter who I haven't met before. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the weekend, and there's nothing, there's never anything wrong with going to San Diego for a day or two. Well, Jock, uh, thanks a million for 
talking with us. I hope you have fun in San Diego, and we'll catch up with you again next week. You can tell us all about it. Thanks, PD. I will. And I should mention that uh, with the departure of Aaron Hill, looks like Will Middlebrooks will get a little bit of ac- extra playing time in Milwaukee. I know they changed leagues, and we're not talking about uh, National League teams, but uh, Will Middlebrooks will be the subject of frequent flyers with Alex Becky a little later in the show. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Todd Zola's coming up next. Stay here, Baseball HQ Radio. Hi. I'm Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined once again by one of my favorite guests from Masters Ball, Roto-Wire, and ESPN. It's Lord Zola. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be back, Patrick. Before we get started talking about players and your wide variety of writings and analysis, how are your teams doing in your experts leagues? Well, I'm on the Clayton Kershaw watch, because in the uh, in mixed labor... I picked him fourth and am, uh, you know, don't want to mess with karma, but have a nice 20-point lead at this point. And uh, so I think I can absorb his timeout if it stays to a month. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not panicking, in other words. I'm, you know, we're uh, hanging in there. I traded away Johnny Cueto a couple weeks ago so before he got hurt, so I'm a little bit nervous about that. But, no, so far in labor, it's pretty good. I built a team around Kershaw. And it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is kind of a cool thing. In NL Tout Warriors, it's kind of the reverse in that, well, not reverse, my team's second place, but it's second place to Derek Carty. And depending upon which of us have pitchers going at a particular time, we, we, we flip-flop the lead. You know, later on today, I'll be in the lead, and 10 minutes later, he'll be in the lead. But he's got Kershaw. So it's kind of weird. I have to, I have to figure out the exact amount of time that I need Kershaw to be out so that I can take NL Tout and not lose mixed labor. So that's kind of where I'm at with uh, with that. Well, it sounds like uh, a couple of pretty good teams. How are your NFBC teams doing? Uh, we're uh, doing okay. Um, I've got an AL only team that is is competing pretty hard. Although this is a team that I picked up James Shields, so uh, it's almost like I lost a bet. I'm going to try to win the league with James Shields. My uh, my auction team and my main event team are both hanging in there. They're, you know, they're within range of cashing. They're not in the in that point now, and I have to do some work to get there. But um, the auction team's been hit with some injuries, and the in the uh, main event team just kind of is just nothing good, nothing bad. It just is what it is. But you know, still half a season left to go, so we'll we'll keep plugging away, keep punching away, and and see if we can get ourselves into the money. 
I stayed away in the uh, Tout Wars AL League. I stayed away from James Shields, even though I could have used some starting pitching. I just didn't trust him. And, uh, of course, he really was terrible the first few starts, but he's had a couple of not great starts, but uh, acceptable ones lately, has he not? Yeah, no, yeah, it's weird. I mean, I obviously, if I have him in the AL, that means I fabbed him. I had the fab hammer in this league, and I was, you know, leading. And I put in what I thought was, you know, the equivalent of a of a price enforcing bid, you know, in an auction. Now I'm of the mind that there's really no such thing as price enforcing. You, if you bid, you better want the guy at the price you're putting him in. You know, you maybe, you know, you better be acceptive of, of whatever if you happen to get him. So I put in a 30% bid. It's a thousand dollar budget. It was something in the low 300s, and figuring, you know, I, I, you know, if I get him for this price, all right, I lose the fab hammer, but I still have a ton of fab left, and you know, prevent somebody else from getting him even, you know, cheaper and coming back to bite me. And I ended up getting him. So uh, I have to play him. And, man, I think I set him for one of his bad outings, but he's been in there ever since. And I don't know. It's You don't get the warm and fuzzies when he's, when he's on the mound, but you are seeing a little more confidence. You're seeing a little more of the old James Shields, and I'm a little less, little less nervous about it. This is a team that's got Felix as the uh, as the starter, and he hopefully will coming back. So hopefully Felix can give me a little bit of the ratio support needed that whatever strikeout Shields does get is, is going to be helpful. But yeah, and we'll also you know we'll have to see what happens at the deadline. Did I make a huge mistake? You know, are the Red Sox going to make a big deal, or someone going to make a big deal in the American League and bring a stud over? And you know, would I have had the hammer for that? And you know, I mean. Yeah, I had Shields for another couple weeks, another month, but that might not be a good thing. You mentioned that Shields you bought for $300 out of a $1,000 budget. Uh, do you recall who the second place bid was, uh, how big the second place bid was? It wasn't like $1 less, but it wasn't like $70 either. I think it was in the, I mean, I can look it up. I think it was in the hundreds to 200s, which sort of, you know, told me, you know, no one really was, you know, on him at all so um i don't know i also i still can't believe he's that bad and even you know having him pitched having watched him pitch he's just it's location more than anything else he's always going to give up home runs i wasn't even worried about that because he didn't you know he doesn't give up cheap home runs when he gives up a homer it's out of petco it's out of u.s cellular it's out of any park so i didn't think there'd be any more home runs given up but it was the run it was the walks that, that really had me concerned, and I kind of figured, you know, maybe this guy needs a reason to, you know, with the White Sox, and hopefully we're going to start competing again. doesn't look like they are, so that argument, that narrative may be thrown out the window, but was hoping that on a team that at least thought they were going to compete, maybe the, you know, the Bulldog would come back out again, and he'd bear down a little bit more and reduce the walks. And i seen a little bit of that, but we're still not seeing the, uh, you know, the... You know, the, the wipeout inning, whenever the White Sox score, Shields would usually come out. I mean, I know he's no longer big game, James, and that sort of stuff. But he was able to have that, what, what do they call it, the shutdown inning now. I think the big, the, the new buzzword. He was able to do that on occasion. And with him, it's just the opposite. White Sox get two runs, and the next inning, he'd give them three back. So uh, I, didn't, I haven't seen that over the past couple of weeks. So hopefully that's the... Uh, the sign that he'll at least be a, a, a good pitcher. I don't need him to be great. Just be good. 
another thing that I liked about him and the reason I looked at him fairly uh, substantially before deciding not to bid was uh, the White Sox have a really good pitching coach in Don Cooper, and I wondered if maybe Don Cooper could resurrect or help James Shields recover from whatever was ailing him in San Diego, not to disparage San Diego's pitching coach, but Don Cooper has a pretty good track record of doing good things with pitchers who have been struggling. Yeah, I didn't. I that's a good point. I didn't. I'm not going to say that I considered it because I didn't. Uh, I was able to look up. Uh, I had I, my bid was 317. The run up was 238. So I mean, you know, it, on relative basis, it wasn't a horrible overbid. It, it may you know 23 to you know in, in hundred dollar terms 32 to 24, which you know doesn't you know sure I overbid, but it, it's not egregious I don't think. But yeah, no, that's a good point about Don Cooper. And uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, there are examples of hitting and pitching coaches helping out their their respective hitters and pitchers pretty well. But I, for whatever reason, I didn't. It that didn't sort of enter into my thinking. There was a story a while ago, Don Cooper talking about James Shields, and he said that the whole thing struck him as weird, and that they were looking at maybe he was tipping his pitches, uh, but but mostly what he had to do was start throwing more strikes. So if anybody can get something out of him, you'd think that Don Cooper, there's a couple of other pitching coaches around baseball who have that reputation, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Todd, you regularly appear on a Rotowire podcast, uh, and in a recent show you had a difference of opinion with our mutual friend Derek Van Riper about the Pittsburgh pitching prospect Tyler Glasnow. What was the source of the difference, and which side were you on? Okay, if I recall, if I recall correctly, it was it was more of uh, not so much sup- uh, performance, but I'm of the mind, and I still am of the mind that once they call Glasnow up, I think he's here to stay. I think that was the plan all along. They waited for the for the deadline, the arbitration, Super Two, and all the different deadlines, and now is the time. There's an opening, and I think I think he's up to stay. I think DVR might have thought it's more of an audition that he needs to pitch well in order to stay. And at this, you know, who, who knows? Maybe, you know, he could be right. If he does go out and stink a couple times, you know, I don't think they'll leave him up to, you know, to, to get killed. But I, I do think that the plan all along was for both Tyone and Glasnow to come up. And I think, you know, Pittsburgh assumed that they would be, you know, at, at minimum competing for the wild card. And these two guys would give them a couple of extra solid starting pitchers, you know, whoever you, so you burn Garrett Cole in the wild card game, you still can come back with a couple of solid pitchers, which they've sort of lacked uh, going, you know, the past couple of years. So I don't know. I kind of, you know, if I have glass now, I'm kind of penciling in and they're 80 innings going forward. It's an interesting question for the Pirates because, as you said, their their team situation is not exactly what they were expecting, and that that matters. You know, I mean that they they have this plan, I'm sure, and uh, they fig- they they look at their division and they say, obviously, Chicago is going to be very tough. You usually expect St. Louis to be very tough. Pretty similar situation to the last couple of years. And how much does that context, do you think, change? And how much do we as fantasy players have to be cognizant of it and keep it in our own minds? I think we need to be aware. And But, you know, on the other hand, I don't, you know, it's not like their window is now closed. They have a bunch of veterans that are gone, and this is the last year they compete. You know, maybe they don't have a John Jaso, and who knows what they do with David Freeze. But these are fungible players. They can go out and get another guy of that ilk, if not bring up Josh Bell or and Alan Hansen and, and, and do it internally. So the point being, 
I, you want to get these guys. I think you want to get these guys some innings this season, so they're you know starting next April they can compete with the Cubs and and the Cardinals and whoever else is competing for the wild card on an even keel. So as opposed to you know their first year or they may not be rookies at that point, but they're you know having to get acclimated the majors. You know, in April, I think they want to get that out of the way now. What it might mean, however, if they're not competing, the 80 innings I mentioned, maybe 60, they may shut them down or you know lose a start or two. Although with a guy like those couple of guys, you don't you, you don't try to extend them and and get to the playoffs, so they still might. But if they if it turns out they're not going to make the playoffs, those are kind of guys you just do shut down, right? You know, just skip a start here and there so they can pitch in the last week. You know, two weeks left in the season, they just they're done. So um, that would be the concern, especially in head-to-head leagues, is is if they're not competing, they may only get 60 or 55 innings and not 80 or 85 going forward. That raises an interesting question for me, Todd. Do you know, you know, we have major league equivalents for most of the stats in the minor leagues for pitchers and hitters alike. So uh, a 320 average at this particular stop in in Double A is only worth 270 in in uh, the big leagues. Tyler Glasnow has 96 innings pitched as of uh, the yesterday, the day before, and so he's on track pretty much to finish the year with close to 200 innings at the minor league level. When they are calculating when they want to pull the pin on a pro, on a young pitcher like Tyon or like Tyler Glasnow, do they discount those minor league innings at all? As far as you know, I don't know. Um, you know, this is you know, there's a lot of talk as there is always. There's a lot of talk as far as uh, you know pitch counts and should you count warm ups and this and that and and all these other things and you know high stress pitches and and the whatnot. So I, I don't I don't know I don't know that you, you're throwing under the same you know in those 96 innings is he is he throwing as many high torque pitches in the minors as he'll need to do in the majors to get guys out are there soft you know you're able just to throw a fastball by three or four hitters in a minor league order whereas in the major league order you know you got to be use your whole arsenal for all nine hitters or eight in the National League so I don't I don't know if if and I think it probably goes team by team. As far as that goes, but you're right. He does have a, a ton uh, of innings already under his belt, 96. And the year before, at, at year 21 in three different levels, he had 110 or so. So if you jump him up 50 or 60, that only gives him another 60 or so innings at the major league level. So they, that will be interesting. And he is only 22. What they do with him as far as going forward this this season, I haven't actually heard a plan as far as innings and and that sort of thing you know you can cap them too by going only five or you know getting taken out in the sixth inning and ah, Pittsburgh's bullpen is not terrible it's it's been better in the past and it's usually been one of their strengths and and, and maybe it'll become that again it's also pretty deep so they can afford to um, you know use extra bullpen but I don't know that you can afford to use extra bullpen for you know every one of your starters, then it, then it becomes a problem. Having said that, though, if we do look at uh, at uh, Glasnow coming up, and even if they say, okay, he's here to stay, that can mean a lot of different things, as you suggest. But one of the things that seems not to suggest is that he's going to get 16 starts and pitch seven innings in each start. 
No, especially if he well, if he, if he continues to walk people at that level, then you know he he will be taken on in the fourth inning, and the team will be down five runs. So he's he's you know is there is there signs that you know we're, we're more hoping that he gets to the major leagues and 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 for whatever you know maybe it's the coach maybe it's the catchers he he's able to get things under control because he's he's had better he's exhibited well actually control's been an issue as he's come up through the entire system. He said, you know, I'm going to say sort of the second year at a level, the control gets better, but even that's not, not really the case. He's, he's always been a pretty high walk guy other than the, his, his year in double a, his time in double a last year, and then up to triple a and he walked 22 and 40 innings again. So it's right back there again. He's the, you know, the key is, is the walks and is, you know, is Ray Searage enough to get the walks down when Cervelli comes back, a pretty good receiver is is having Cervelli be your backstop enough to get the walks down. I guess if you got Glass now, you have to hope so. But it's not, you know, that that that, that could be an issue. And, and I guess that I think that's what Derek's probably looking at too, is saying, you know, if he continues to walk walk the ballpark, they can't leave him in there. It's not fair to the team. Todd, last week you did your second half updates for your top 350 players looking at the second half to come. And before we get to individual guys, did you spot any noteworthy trends for this year? Well, I don't think, yeah, it's not a secret. It's, it's talked about in the HQ forums, and everybody's talking about it. Home runs are up almost at a record pace, and steals are down. And uh, run scoring, you know, home runs have, you know, <clears throat> up, down a little bit, but run scoring's stayed similar. Run scoring's up a bit, too. So uh, I think, you know, but that, I don't know, to me that it, it's equal everywhere. I don't know that I worry as much. I don't think you can factor that into any fantasy game theory. But with, you know, with power up and steals down, I do think you need to think about when you're trying to, you know, catch up in categories and the whatnot. And not just that, you know, if you believe the Farmer's Almanac that it's going to be uh, inclemently warm in, in places that aren't quite normally as warm over the summer, I mean, some places it's always hot, right? Others, it maybe not so much. Like where I am in Boston, it's it's supposed to have a warmer summer than normal. Balls travel further in the in the in the hot weather, so we could even be seeing more power if we if we can believe that. So I think these things, you know, when you start to figure out where you're going to catch up in your categories, or you know how much Mark Trumbo is going to regress and that sort of stuff, power's way up for whatever reason, and strikeouts are way up as well. So I, I I do think you need to consider that, and the same with steals is, is, and I haven't looked too in depth, but it looks to me like guys that steal are still stealing. We're just not getting the, you know, the five or six or seven over the half of the season from some of the guys that normally chip in with a handful. So you can still make a move by picking up a stolen base guy, but you're not you might not be getting, you know, the Andrew McCutcheons and 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 the the, the guys that you know get your ten or twelve. Those are the guys that seem to me that, that aren't stealing as much as normal. I thought it was interesting that after uh, quite a few years, I think three or four years in a row, where the league-wide or major league-wide uh, ERA was under four, it's back up to four and a quarter this year, which is a pretty significant increase. And yet, when we look at the top tier of starting pitchers, they're still all down around two. So where is this explosion of ERA happening? Yeah, I've, I, I tweeted about this, and, and I, it was part tongue-in-cheek and part serious, and I need to do some research on this, is I think part of the reason you know people want to go back to the 
PEDs and all these other reasons, just uh, baseballs. I think there's just a huge dichotomy in the pitching staffs now. And I think, I think as you suggest, I think the top, I think there's three tiers of pitchers looking at strikeouts and looking at home runs. I think there's, there's a top tier that you know is very good, strikes a lot of guys, and, and is pretty good with the homers. I think there's, I think the bottom tier is even worse than normal, where they're not striking anybody out and they're giving up homers. And then the third tier is Max Scherzer. <laughs> what does that mean? Ah, it, was a, it just means that he's striking guys out and giving up homers. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a middle tier too, but I think I think if you I think if you were to sort of map out these three tiers, I think you would see the two the, the two at the end, the the extreme tier and the and the bottom tier. I think you'd see more of a dichotomy than normal. I think there'd be more of a distribu uh, before an evener distribution maybe before. So I, I think that the um, and I think you know maybe some of it has to do with the injuries and underperformance of some of the top guys, which, as we've studied over the past couple of years, and we talk about it in the first pitch form tour in the spring, if you sort of have a subset of the most stable and most reliable players, over the past few years, it's been stud starting pitchers. It sort of goes against intuition and, and how we think and conventional wisdom. But if you're, you know, if you're looking to draft from safety, a, a, a stud starting pitcher was the place to look. And there's quite a few that aren't I, have either been injured or the performance hasn't been up to par, or maybe like a guy like Syndergaard who's, you know, not technically injured, but anytime you got a bone spur floating around in that elbow of yours, you know, stuff could happen at any time. We are seeing this this separation between the top pitchers and the bottom pitchers, and I also I think. There's a lot of fairly poor bullpen pitchers as well, and they are contributing disproportionately to the ERA increase across Major League Baseball. You see an awful lot of teams that have relatively poor bullpen performance because they're loading up with more and more bullpen pitchers. It just stands to reason that some of them aren't going to be that good. And you and I are both old enough to remember when it was pretty common for a team to carry 14 hitters and 11 pitchers. Now that ratio is sometimes there's more pitchers on the staff than there's hitters. Heck, I'm old enough. I think you are too. We're 15 and 10. Yeah, no, it's it's insane. And I think I think what else is it's become an, an economic thing too where not only are bullpens bad, but it's sort of a domino effect in that all the you know you got the Yankees with their with their stud bullpen you know Kansas City, and that so uh, how do I how do I, how do I explain you know you get a good pitcher following a good pitcher following a good pitcher, and the this the sum total is even better because none of them are leaving runners for another, but you got these bad bullpens that have a bunch of bad pitchers. And each, you know, each of them's not leaving a clean inning. They're leaving runners for the next guy who's not very good, who's leaving runners for the next guy who's not very good. And I think it's sort of, you know, it's it, you get even a, a domino effect, and you get more, even if it's just one, you know, one run a game every other game. It's still a lot of runs in the in the in the overall. In that, so they, some of these bad bullpens don't even have the semi-decent pitcher to to stop the bleeding. It just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, we look at it in DFS, and I've heard more people than ever mention, you know, not only am I going to stack because it's a weak starting pitcher, but I'm also going to stack because once that starting pitcher leaves, their bullpen's terrible. And we didn't hear that for a couple of years, and we're beginning to hear that more and more. And I think part of it's people just being cognizant of it, but the other reason being there's a reason to be cognizant of it. Bullpens are terrible on some teams. Well, I happen to have been writing about or looking at uh, bullpens, and here's a surprising stat. Uh, you know who the worst team in Major League Baseball is for allowing inherited runners to score amongst bullpen pitchers? 
Do not know off the top. The Yankees. Huh. And who'd have thought that when you look at that tremendous back end of that of that bullpen? It's practically the uh, the subject of legends and lore at this point. You know they're composing uh, odes to them, and yet this is a bullpen that's allowing an awful lot of inherited runners to score because the the Yankees bullpen is not just those three guys. It's those three guys plus those other you know four guys who just aren't really that good, and they find their way into ball games a lot because the starters aren't going as deep, and blah blah blah. And we're we're starting to see these effects. And I, I was uh, looking up the the stats from 2015. There were 12 pitchers last year, starting pitchers with ERAs under three. This year, that number's up to 20, even though the ERA has risen by uh, almost half a run. Interesting. Uh, the other, I, mean, I, I, I was sort of not so much worried about it, but I, it, when when the Yankees put together this ridiculous bullpen, you know, it's, this isn't stratomatic. This isn't score sheet where you can, you know, manage, you know, it's real life. And they're, what they're probably doing, you know, I don't, I don't think Betances and and Miller are giving up a ton of these inherited runners because they're probably treating them like closers, and they're probably only coming in at the beginning of an inning. I think, you know, the guys that are are giving up the runs of the lesser relievers being brought in in the fifth and sixth, and those are the guys giving up the runs. And as opposed to, you know, maybe maybe what the Yankees need to do is is take a look at this, and burn one of those guys earlier, and and burn him in the fifth, and put the fire out in the in the sixth. And heck, you still got two of the best guys for the tail end of the game too. So maybe at this point, if the Yankees want to make a run, they need to be smarter, and and realize what's going on, and not bring in. The uh, you know these gas cans in the fifth and sixth inning and, and take advantage and just you know so you can't go seven eight nine with the studs well you're going to get to the seventh and eighth more often it sounds like anyway if you were to use batances you know bring them in in the fifth and you know go one and a third or something like that and then find someone else to bridge in the seventh before you get to Miller so what you're saying is modern managers should pay more attention to leverage and uh, I, I hate to say it Todd <laughs> but you're not the first oh no 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 I'm not and the other thing I brought up too. And you know, sort of, is, it, it was a, a complete reaction to Chris Young the other day. Is is you know, we, why 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 start a fly ball pitcher in a big park? I'm sorry, a home run park against a big powerful team. You know, you know, with fantasy owners, we're, we're smart enough to sit Chris Young. Is he is it that important to keep Chris Young in a five day? Uh, and I'm just using him as sort of the example. You can you can I think managers there's so much specialization in the bullpen. I'm surprised we're not seeing more of this. And I think it's Aaron Nola who they're actually – Philadelphia uh, is is shutting him down a little early before the break and coincidentally is missing a start, a start in cores, uh, you know, the idea being he can extend his innings. But I don't think it's – I don't think it's a coincidence that it happens to be a start in cores that he's you know, unfortunately missing. Well, speaking of Colorado, you remember a couple of years ago they had that experiment where they had Ugh. the uh, four starters with the four backup starters, who were, right. and it was all on some kind of schedule, and it didn't work. And I was remembered asking Jeff Erickson from Rotowire about that once on my podcast here, and uh, he said the main reason was they weren't good pitchers, you know, and right. you can, yeah. and, it, and it's Colorado. Oh so, yeah, it, it, yeah, and. and the same, you know, the way back when, people recall, Theo Epstein tried to do that with the bullpen uh, before they went out and got Keith Folk, and the rest, as they say, is history. But he, he actually tried to do the, the you know, we don't have a closer sort of thing in, in mix and match. And so people have tried it, and the problem being, when it doesn't work, why didn't, you know, they don't, they don't 
why didn't it work? Was it the pitchers that we had? Was it just you know dumb luck that it, the first time we tried it didn't work? And therefore, it's just thrown out the window. Not that I think that piggybacking four pitchers and four pitchers is, is a good idea. But I think it was just uh, it was as much Coors Field <laughs> as it was anything else at that point. I don't know that it was a good idea or a bad idea because I think that the noise in this in the uh, experiment mm-hmm. is the they were bad pitchers. If they if they'd have had eight pitchers who were who who were good pitchers but who had trouble getting deep into games, then it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me to say, look, this guy's lights out when he go, for the first. 20 batters in a game but we're forced because of tradition or because this is what everybody does to let this guy stay in through 25 or 26 hitters and it's those you know 20 through 26 that are killing us let's get him out of the game before he gets to the point where he starts to stink and uh, to me this makes a ton of sense and and i think somebody somewhere sometime in the next two or three years given the amount of data that's getting collected and the smart people who are analyzing that data, somebody's going to figure out a way to manage it. And I think that the problem that they've had so far has been a combination of not really being clear on on what you're trying to accomplish and secondly, not having the personnel to, to do what you're trying to accomplish. I think the third problem, and that is that, you know, pitchers want to get a win. And if it, say if this were to happen, you I, I promise you the pitcher would want to pitch the middle three innings. This way he doesn't you know he he starts the game he doesn't get a win because he only you know only goes three he's only good for one time through the order. He maybe hits faces eleven hitters gives up a walk and a hit in three innings and he's gone. But it's this middle guy that's going to do the same thing and get the win and then they go to the bullpen at the end of the game. So a lot of it's culture too and 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 and. and uh, agents aren't going to like it because they're not going to be able to use the win in their arbitration cases and everything else. It's to me it's sort of the same thing as the bullpen in that if 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 if, if pitching were if this was the if this was done all the way down, I don't know if you can do it in the low minors because I think you're trying to do other things at this point. But once you get to Double A and Triple A, if if your if your pitchers are trained in this manner, by the time they get to the majors, they're ready for it. And if there's a way to make it non-financial that you can still get your money regardless then uh you know go for it but uh, you know you can you can see people aren't going to uh, is someone going to pay uh, as much as they're paying for these stud starting pitchers if all they're doing is going three innings even if it's every third or fourth day as opposed to every fifth day so i i think it's going to you know there are other issues involved uh along with just personnel and and the capability of doing it I hear that, but I I bet you that wins are playing less and less of a role in arbitration awards and free agent contract negotiations. Everybody in baseball with a brain knows that wins don't matter. I mean, the broadcasters. We my uh, my wife and I watch the Blue Jays, and Buck Martinez is still saying uh, the mo- the mo- most important thing is that you win the game, and that means. And Harold Reynolds said the same thing in a very famous uh, encounter he had with Brian Kenny mm-hmm. on ESPN. But everybody who knows anything, the agents, the GMs, the front office people, they all know wins don't matter matter they're they're negotiating on other things on strikeout rates and and velocities and uh, and horizontal and vertical movement there uh, you know it, it's a it's a different game when they're talking about money I don't think that's going to be the problem and in fact if I was a guy like Jeff Francis and Jeff Francis was kind of the poster child for this Colorado experiment and somebody comes to me and says you're really good through three three innings or you know maybe four innings at the most and then you stink, 
So if you get into a system where you only ever have to pitch four innings, you're going to look really good. And when you look really good, there's going to be financial rewards. And as for the cultural part of it, couldn't they just say, okay, this week you're the number one guy and you don't get a chance at the win, but next week you guys switch spots. And, you know, you could easily see a guy picking up 30 wins, pitching three innings a game three times a week. It makes a whole ton of sense. Uh, Whether we see it or not, just not sure. And when we do see it, we, you know, as fans, we better hope that it works the first time. Because if it doesn't, we'll never see it again. And if it does, we'll see another team do it, then another team do it, and it, it could become the norm sooner than later. But um, you know, the, you know, then what we'll do is we'll go to Twitter and we'll see how this college pitcher went 150 pitches in the semifinals and came back, you know, with 120 in the finals because then you know their coach doesn't care when the the NCAA's. And then you know, so we'll we'll see if that culture, you know, gets passed down through everybody but sure i mean it makes so much sense just look at the go to baseball reference and look at the numbers first three innings second three innings and last three innings Uh, i also prom i also pretty much i'll bet you they start to use things like you know this pitcher this pitcher always gets hit in the first inning so we're going to use him four through six although it doesn't (laughs) well his first inning is the fourth in this case but they'll still base decisions i'm not as convinced as you are that everybody in the game is smart as smart i don't I, I think i'll put the agents in i think the agents know what to talk you know understand that wins aren't whatever but they're still going to use whatever they can uh to, to to make their case whether it's refuted or not i don't know but i think agents will i mean that's why holds are in the league is because if agents needed something to get their middle relievers paid and like I said, I think that'll change. And uh, just to wrap up this this little conversation, I remember reading an article somewhere within the last year or so where the the analyst said it would make an awful lot of sense for a lot awful lot of teams to take uh, their their one of their real overpowering relievers and let him pitch the first five or six hitters, so that your starter comes in starting with the seven guy in the in the order and gets to you know knock off an easy inning before he has to pick up and face those guys. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ins and outs as far as figuring out what is the optimal way to approach matching your pitchers to the hitters that they're going to face and and. Traditionally, it is we we stick our starting pitcher on the mound and he starts with the top guy in the batting order. Maybe that ain't the way to do it. It, it probably isn't. I don't know that. I don't know. I don't know how much we'll see it change because you know every team's gonna have. A, I don't say Clayton Kershaw, but what do you do when you've got that starter that can go six or seven or eight innings? You've got Johnny Cueto. You have some of these other guys that can go. Do they get restricted to three innings too? And and. And does that cause issues? How come he gets to do this and I could, but you never let me, that sort of thing? So is it an all or nothing or do you have to sort of play subjective? And I don't know. It's fun to talk about, but I don't know. I mean, maybe you're right and we'll see it, but I don't, I, I don't know that we're going to see too much of it, at least in the near future anyway. Oh, I'm sure we won't see them until somebody does it and starts winning. And as soon as that happens, you're going to see a lot of trouble. We're talking about premium starting pitchers, Todd, and you mentioned in in your column that we've already seen injuries with some of the big names. Kershaw, Strasburg, uh, Syndergaard has a couple of red flags floating over him, as I discussed in Master Notes last week. Felix Hernandez is hurt. Matt Harvey just went on the DL. And we're seeing some performance-related questions, even with top guys like Jake Arrieta, Dallas Koichel's having a bad year. David Price doesn't seem to be as effective. Uh, Max Scherzer, you mentioned, seems to be giving up a lot of home runs. Even Chris Sale hasn't looked that good the last few starts. How does this 
resumed uncertainty involving starting pitchers affect your view of the second half of this fantasy season? I, yeah, well, actually, I, I, I'm real curious how it affects the beginning of next year. But uh, if I'm, you know, back to the premise, if I'm doing a draft at this point, I think I'm, st- well, you can throw the whole wrench in the thing with Kershaw, how long is he out? But I think I'm still all over Max Scherzer. And I think, I don't know, we haven't seen enough to say this is the new Chris Sale and that, you know, he's just a very, very good pitcher with a, a lowered strikeout rate. But my point being, I would be, I would fade pitching kind of like the, not so the olden days, but I would not be one of these guys that needs to get two stud pitchers in the first five rounds. I kind of wasn't even one of those guys going in. I think Bumgarner would still be, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I would, I would pay what it takes to get Bumgarner. But some of these other guys that were sneaking in in the, in, in the top 50, I, I'm, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not paying the money or in a draft. I'm not drafting them in the third or fourth or fifth round. And that's kind of reflected in my rankings. Uh, I will piece together a staff with the guys that I think will emerge in the second half and, and just take my chances that way. And I, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned NFBC before you know, a big NFPC player, um, you know, NFPC is taking pitching, it's just flying off the board. I'm curious to see how the drafts next season, are we still going to see pitching flying off the boards as much as we are? I still think a lot of that depends upon what happens with a guy like Price in the second half and, and maybe Keiko, some of the healthier guys, do they improve so that we don't notice you know, how poor their first half may have been. But um, I suspect that this past season was sort of the pinnacle of, of taking pitching early. And I think we may start to, to, to head back where, you know, pitch, you know, you can get your third starting pitcher in the ninth round. You don't need to get him in the sixth or seventh anymore. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Rotowire and ESPN and Masters Ball, the mothership. And uh, Todd, that update article I was talking about at Rotowire linked out to the aggregate rankings of four Rotowire experts, you and three others. And there was some disagreement among you guys starting right at the top. They had Mike Trout as number one, but for you, he was number two. Who was your number one and why? Well, I have Jose Altuve, number one. And the, the basic reason being is the guy is ridiculous. Um, I don't know where, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the baseball HQ numbers. If, if Desmond was third, got to believe Altuve was first or second. He, I can't imagine he was anything lower. Um, the guy is running. He's running into home runs. And the batting average is ridiculous. And I don't factor positions in, but people do. And, you know, he's doing it all from the second base. So it, it, it's close. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not making fun of the guys that picked out, picked Mike Trout, number one. But man, you know, if, if it's, I'd have to consider at this point taking Altuve number one overall uh, next year, if he, if I, I, I can't re- expect a repeat of this season. But if the guy's going to steal 40 bases and still hit 15 or 16 homers and hit 300, that's, that's, I can build it. I'm into team construction. Give me, give me Jose Altuve, and I'm pretty comfortable that I can build a winning team around that. Jose Altuve is the number one player in uh, among hitters, actually among all players except Kershaw at the Baseball HQ rankings, uh, $43 in a 5x5 15-team league. Uh, actually, he's got a pretty substantial lead over Mike Trout, as a matter of fact, uh, $43 to $36. And when you look at the numbers, as you say, I mean, it's, it's cut and dried. He's only four homers behind Trout. 
seven RBIs behind him and eight stolen bases ahead, and stolen bases are just worth more. And he's got fairly significant batting average advantage and no significant uh, deficit as far as slugging percentage. It's, uh, it's a slam dunk for Jose Altuve, it seems to me. I know it sounds you know wishy-washy and we say probably and could and stuff like that, but in baseball we don't know. It is a probably situation. It might regress, and we don't know that it will regress. But you know, I'm not even saying that he's going to hit 340 and hit another 15 homers. I'll give him a 300 average with eight homers and 17 steals, and to me that's still the top performance over the second half. And he's hitting either first or third, so I, whether it's runs or RBIs or a little bit of both, He's and it's in a productive lineup. He's been hitting third a lot lately. He, you know, RBIs are going to increase. Springer's been a little higher in the order, and they've actually had Marwin Gonzalez of all people in between, and for good reason. He's hitting the ball. So whether it's runs or RBIs, he's contributing in that manner as well. And it's actually over the course of the season, there's less of a disparity between the runs and the RBIs just because he's been hitting hitting third lately. That actually helps him as far as, and that to me it's even further, that actually helps him as far as run production because you score the same amount of runs hitting first or third. Sometimes you score more runs hitting third, but you get more RBIs hitting third. So that actually helps a leadoff hitter, and it could, you know, it might it, it might be why someone like Mookie Betts isn't quite up is high, at least at least on my list uh, because from the leadoff, although that line, lineup turns over enough, but it's just enough that you know if he was sitting third, he'd probably be a top three player for me. You mentioned Ian Desmond. Uh, he is the th- number three tied with Mookie Betts at BaseballHQ.com for hitter value. But all of you guys at the Rotowire list had Ian Desmond way down your list. His average rank was 38, his low was 48. Why does uh, none of you believe in Ian Desmond's excellent first half? And you're not alone in this. There's very few people who think Ian Desmond is for real. Well, wait a minute. Wait, well, well, I, I get him at 31, and even 38. I'm not so sure that doesn't believe. I mean, relative to where we all thought he would be, you know, just I mean, 31 still pretty good, <laughs> I think anyway. So I'm not, I don't, I just don't believe he's the third best best player in fantasy. But for me, 31 in a 15 team league, you know, he's on that two three wheel. To me, you know, I consider him once you know at the once I start getting close to the wheel in the second round. So I, I think that's still a, a pretty strong uh, indication that we think he is for real. But to just to me, I don't I mean again. Will his 320 average come down? I don't know. Should it? Yeah, it, it should. And the power—it's hard to judge parks and, and this and that. And the other thing, Texas is a, is a good hitting park and steals a lot of opportunity as much as anything else. So I don't know that you can just take his 15 and 15 and double them and say he's going to be 30-30, but, you know, he's certainly going to get more homers and more steals. But the average, I think, you know, I don't think he's going to hit 320 for the second half. So a second, third-round pick for me is still pretty darn good. But it's not number three overall among hitters, and if you factor in a few pitchers here and there, it's halfway through the third round, and there obviously are going to be other guys who are going to get picked and so forth. The thing about Ian Desmond that that really catches my eye, uh, that makes me think you're probably likely to be right about batting averages, he's brandishing a 400 BABIP, and we know from experience that, of course, guys set their own BABIPs, but Ian Desmond's never been anywhere near this, has he? 
No, no, on the good. No, I, well, I'm che- I'm checking. Uh, you know, my my new favorite thing, and everybody's new favorite thing is the is the hard hit rate to see if it can be supported, and I think that'll uh, we, that may may come up and come up in a future evaluation because uh, I, I, that's sort of what one of my pet value uh, metrics now. But um, his contact is better, which is a good thing because if the you know it, it sort of equalizes if the BABIP does come down. His hard hit rate is, I mean, he's he's been up and down. It's what it, last year's hard hit rate was was down. It's back to where it was before. So I think if you factor his, you know, give him his old BABIP with better contact, and I, that's probably where you would land in terms of batting average. So he's hit. To, his batting average has been all over the place between you know 250 at a, that one year of 280. So if we use a 260 as a baseline, I think I probably have him around 280 for the rest of the season, which is good. But unless you're really slugging or you know really stealing, uh, you know it's not number three overall. Because you know listen, we just talked about we just talked about Altuve and Trout, how good they are. You know third would be next. <laughs> and is there is there no other player that we'd rather have than Ian Desmond? Over Altuve and Trout, you know, I, I think that there's a guy named Arenado and Machado and Betts, there's several guys. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I think there's more of a chance that we're wrong on the other end, and and, and Desmond ends up to be a, a fifth or sixth round player than he ends up to be a first or second round. Well, you mentioned Mookie Betts. He's number three overall in the BaseballHQ.com valuation rankings, and he was number three among your peers. But for you, number eight, it's uh, it's still a a, a nice high ranking but why not more love for the mookster you know i kind of alluded to it before and there's there's uh two i guess a couple of reasons part of it it, it, at the end of the day it came down to i just went down the list and it said would i take this guy over mookie yeah i guess i would by the numbers i mean my latest list he's fifth and this list he was like eighth that i based it off of so i mean the difference between third and eighth was like a dollar and a half as far as dollar value goes but then i do a second scrub where i i inject my own sort of uh, where would I take him? And I just between hitting hitting first and uh, and, and just and to me, if you're going to jump a guy up, who who are we going to knock out? And there was just no one ahead of him that I have ahead of him that I that I would that I would you know other people are obviously going to disagree. There's only four or five names, but there's no one that I have listed ahead of him that I would take Mookie over. Again, eighth, eighth, eighth is not, eighth is not, re- I'm not disrespecting Mookie Betts by having him number eight overall, especially when, you know, Kershaw's in there um, and the injury, if he gets any worse, he would not be in my top five. So you move him up to number seven, Mookie Betts. But uh, I was just, the guys I have ahead of him, I think I could just, part of it's team construction, not that I couldn't build a team around Mookie, but um, I don't know. I see him every day too. So I know it's real. But there's just I, I feel a little more comfortable with four or five guys ahead of him. Well, you see Jackie Bradley Jr. every day as well. Uh, you were way lower on him than your peers in this exercise. They put him around number 75. You're at 155. Clearly, you're not convinced by Jackie Bradley's uh, fairly solid first half. Why not? Yeah, there's two things here. First, well, first I need to explain, too, is... Um, and the pieces actually, I think I just just got the note that it's posted. So it's if you're subscribed to Rotowire, uh, it's up there now. I did a piece, of, and I think what did I call it? Um, uh, I reserved the right to change my mind. And I went back and I partially just talking with with guys like Derek and some and some some users. I, I kind of reevaluated some players, and 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 Bradley was one. Now I'm still lower on Bradley 
than the than the group, but I did bump him up 30 or 40 spots. And with, with Bradley, the contact is much, much, much better. And the the power, the home run for fly ball, all that stuff is, is stable. So it's not like we're, we're not seeing a, a spike in power. We're seeing a spike in playing time. Um, I just, I think there's, there, and he's hitting the ball hard. I just think we're going to see some give back in batting average. And part of the reason I bumped him up was he's been hitting higher in the order and deserves more plate appearances than, than what he when I gave him when I did this original list. And, you know, hitting high in the order does two things. It gets you more chances, and it also gets you into a part of the order where you're uh, there's just more chances to to knock in runs and, 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 and score, especially in, in well, the rest of the Red Sox lineup. Uh, the, the back end of it's not as good as it was, but maybe you know, when injuries come back and, and now that Brock Holt's back, maybe it gets lengthened a little bit more. But even so... And a lot of what I do too is I mentioned in NFBC, I kind of where where what is Bradley to me? And to me, he's still a, a second or third outfielder in on an NFBC team. To me, he's still not my first outfielder. So I kind of take took the numbered ranks and the, the the objective ranks. And you know, where do I normally take? Where do I you know where where do people take a second or third outfielder and kind of pushed into that area? Um, I don't know. I just I just can't make him. What did, I think he said he was like 55 or something. I can't make him a fourth round pick. I just maybe I'm maybe I'm willing to be wrong. And 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 if someone picks Bradley in the fourth round and, and beats my team, you know I'll buy him a beer. But I still have to wait a few more rounds before I go to JBJ. Perhaps the most interesting guy on on the list when I was looking at it was Bryce Harper. The group puts him uh, at around <laughs> 11. You had him slightly lower at number 16. Again, these are not horrible places for a player to be, but Bryce Harper was everybody's consensus number one or number two pick this year. And so I'm curious, what's your take on Bryce Harper for the balance of this year? And then even more critically, where is he going to fit next year when people are starting to have this discussion? There's two guys, and I, Stanton and the other. And we can, you could, you could put the word Stanton in there and ask the same question, as far as I'm concerned. Because talk about recency bias. If I'm making out the list and I flip on the TV and one of them goes long, and he's suddenly number five for me. And then I, I go to the notes and read that he's, you know, hurt his ankle and he's back down to twentieth for me. So you know, talk about being swayed by what you know what happened the previous game. Both of those guys are like that. I, I, you just kind of have to go in blind, and and what would I what would I do? Would I really trust Bryce Harper if I'm drafting a team for the second half with so many other more reliable players? Would I really take Bryce Harper number two, three, four, five overall? And would with Harper, I I kind of didn't even look at the numbers because we just don't know. And I said, w- at what point am I comfortable taking him? Uh, and it kind of just came down to where the reliability, where the where his upside. Uh, was was more important to me than the safety and reliability of whoever I was comparing him against. I, I can't really speak for the other guys, but you know that's what it was. I don't know that we can give him you know another 81 games worth of at bats or 80 or 79 at this point, whatever it might be. I think you still have to hedge a little bit. But um, and then I think the other factor too is, as we've shown at least this year, are they going to pitch to him? And he was number. If, if it's an OBP league, he's number two or three for me. But in a, you know, this might even be more important than than the actual than anything else. Te- teams have shown they're just not going to pitch to him, so that that hurts his fantasy value. 
And finally, uh, you were way more enthusiastic about Starling Marte of the Pirates than your peers were. They placed him on their list somewhere between 21 and 33. You have him as the number five player, which is uh, a pretty pretty uh, complimentary placing for Starling Marte, I'm sure well out of the ordinary realm of where most other experts have him. Why are you so enthusiastic about Starling Marte? Which is weird because I've, I've been sort of, everybody else has been enthousi- more, more enthusiastic than I about Marte. And it has to do with steals and it has to do with steals being down. And it has to do with if I take Starling Marte in the first round, pay $30, $32 for him, can I then build a team around Starling Marte to compete? And I think I can. He contributes enough in the other categories. He contributes, you know, he's not a huge power hitter. You know, Mookie should, Mookie should hit more homers, but uh, he contributes enough power and enough runs in RBI and that, that I'll take the steals because he's one of the few runners that's stealing at a really high pace, and it's a high success rate, and Pittsburgh in general is stealing, letting their guys steal. So, you know, I think you have to look at that too in the team context with steals down does the guy play on a team that should run? And I think he will. Um, and that's what it is. It's, more, it's, it's, it's as much number, it's as much game theory. And can I build a winning, you know, I, in the second round I get a power hitter. So now I've got my power speed combo with a ton of counting stats with, with Marte. Now, pushing comes to shove. Of course, in a real league or a real draft, I have a better idea of the market. And do I need to take Starling Marte fifth? Could I wait and take him in the second round? That you know, that's sort of the game I play. I've always wanted to take 15 guys, lock them in a room in October, give them the Bill James handbook and a computer that only gets fan graphs, and and let them out in March and have a draft. And that's all they get. You know, maybe give them a pizza once in a while. And, you know, they've got no influence as far as what what other people are thinking. They don't read anybody's stuff. They don't hear any drafts. All they got is statistics and a computer, and let's see, now let's draft. And, uh, you know, obviously that's not going to happen, but, you know, it's an advantage. I know, I know how people think about Marte. I know if I can take him in the first or second. But blind, if I had no idea, I'd take him fifth. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Roto-Wire. And, Todd, you recently wrote what you called a WOBA primer, weighted on-base average <laughs> primer, and you said, and I quote, Frankly, some are misusing WOBA, incorrectly applying it and drawing erroneous conclusions. What does that mean? It, it happens with all numbers. Some, you know, People hear a stat and they assume that it's smart to use it, and they just start to use it. It, it, it was that way with BABIP and, and a few other things. I think you have to understand what WOBA is. And in, in both a team and a player context, it's, it's a souped-up version of on-base percentage where the components of on-base percentage are given a coefficient according to the that year's run matrix. You know how much how, mu- how many runs does a team score when a guy gets a double and a triple and a walk and the different components. And that's where the you know the W the weighted comes in. And it's a pretty good uh, proxy for run expectation. So it it it's not you know if you're looking for a one size fits all statistic. And the idea being to sort of be a proxy for how many runs a players can produce. Well, you know, there's, there's other there are runs created stats as well, but you know, it's a, it's a rate stat that comes pretty close. And DFS community primarily has adopted it as sort of their, you know, 
quick down and dirty stat to judge a good a good hitter or a good pitcher uh, to use that night based on a team's woba against it. And so just not, people not understanding what it actually is. I hear people quoting wobas for hitters and saying, "Well, this guy's a good start uh, because he's got a X woba against you know left-handed hitters." Well, one of the things that WOBA doesn't do, it doesn't have a stolen base component. So it doesn't account for Jose Altuve. It doesn't account for Jonathan Villar. It doesn't account for some stolen base guys. So if you're using WOBA as your litmus test, you're not getting a true gauge of the ranking for players. It's not part corrected. So, you know, neither is batting average and everything else, and no one seems to care. But we're not, you know, we're not setting a DFS lineup, putting our money down and, and trying to win either. So a 320 Woba in San Diego or San Francisco is a lot more impressive than a 320 Woba in, uh, in Cincinnati or, or, you know, Coors. And people just look at them, at, you know, 320 is 320, 350 is 350. So I think I think that's a mistake as well. And a little more esoteric, a little more subtle, is its potential. It's a it's a rate stat. So a 350 woba hitting third is going to produce more runs than a 350 woba hitting seventh or eighth. They're not the same because you're in a meteor part of the order, and you're going to have you know the double supposed to produce this many runs. Well, you're going to produce more if hitting third than if you're hitting seventh. And you know a 350 woba. For the St. Louis Cardinals, you're gonna is gonna produce more runs than a 350 Woba for the Atlanta Braves, just because of the the supporting cast. You're not gonna have as many runners on or guys to knock you in with these doubles and triples and singles. So I think you you sort of need to it's it's a good metric, but it's not the be all end all. You sort of need to consider where it comes from, and some of the other side factors about it. And it's a piece of the puzzle if you know how to use it. It's a great piece of the puzzle, but you know, I think people hear it, sounds cool, sounds cool to say, and it, and it becomes their go-to without really understanding what it is. You also mentioned in the article there's an element of luck that WOBA doesn't cover. We all know to factor in BABIP as a luck measure, as a luck check, but we don't do that with WOBA. And I think what people believe is it's one of these fancy new metrics, so it must eliminate luck, but it really doesn't. Right now, I mean, we 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 know that OBP has less luck than 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 batting average, just because the walks are are a bigger fact. Well, no, they're they're a factor. So, and and I think they they mitigate some of the luck aspect of batting average and balls in play, because it it takes away it increases the denominator with with adding walks in there. And I don't know that you know luck and walks. I don't think you can. You know, you don't, you can't necessarily predict them exactly, but it does mitigate it, and it, and it, it, it does mitigate the fact that you're weighting some of these other numbers. It takes away, but it doesn't completely remove it. And you know, I, I hear all the time, you know, Ian Desmond has a lucky BABIP. You know, we never, you know, but yet when when we're talking about Ian Desmond as a uh, DFS guy, someone will quote as Woba. Well, that's that same lucky BABIP is, is the same. You know, led into that, fed into that same woba, but how come we don't, d- d- you know, say that maybe he's not of a good of a DFS guy? I don't, you know, I keep using Ian Desmond. It could be anybody that's of the same, you know, David Ortiz, you know, everybody that's of the same ilk. Maybe, uh, you know, how come we're so quick to say these guys are going to regress, but yet when we're looking at him for DFS on that night, we're using that woba and we're not 
just you know saying that that wob is too high. So I think that there's uh you know again you just sort of have to understand it. And the other aspect of it, and I'm man, I need more time to do this study because I think it's really important, and I think it's one of the fun things about DFS. You know, how much of a how much you know this feeds into the luck. When you take a look at a pitcher, okay, so a team's woba against lefties is such and such and so and so, therefore this pitcher is a good matchup. But that's the seasonal woba. I mean, do you need to look at for two weeks? Do you need to look at for three weeks? Do you need to, you know, lineups are different, guys get hurt, and all that sort of thing. What is the size of of the uh, of, of weighted on base against that's really predictive, or isn't it? Doesn't even exist. So I mean, but yet you know, I do the same thing when I write up my articles. And, you know, such and such team has a 270 Wilbur against lefties, therefore start this pitcher. But maybe over the past three weeks or 310 or 320, I don't I don't know if that means the team's hot or this or that. I don't I don't know the answer. I think none of us knows the answer because I haven't found it. But that's the other thing too is what size, what 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 sample is necessary, strikeout percentage as well. To be considered predictive, to be considered actionable when we're doing some of these things. And you can do the same thing in, in seasonal lineups, because I think on our fringe players, we're looking at matchups and, you know, who has more games and that sort of thing. And I think we need to use the same short-term analysis more and more and more in seasonal ball as well, so it's not just a DFS thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. And Todd, during the season, as you know, we ask our experts to pick out some studs and duds for the balance of the season. Sounds like you've been doing a lot of that the last little while anyway, so maybe we're catching you at a perfect time. Let's start with the hitters uh, in the American League. Who's a stud hitter that you'd like to have on your roster for the rest of the season? Well, I mean, I've heard you, you know, I listen to your interviews, and I don't, you know, people, you know, some people are going to say Mike Trout. Um, I'm going to go with a kind of go a little different here, and I'm going to go Rajay Davis because he is going to get the steals that you want. And, and if you're asking for an AL stud hitter, I'm, I know that, you know, let's do an AL and NL, but I'm going to kind of use the, the – in an AL-only league, I really want Rajay Davis. I know Amante's back. I don't know how much he's going to play. But those steals that Davis gets are going to be really, really helpful in an AL-only league. And I, don't, I think people – he's sliding under the radar a bit. So I'm going to, for my AL stud hitter, second half, Rajay Davis. I like that pick as well. He's got more home runs than Starling Marte and nearly as many stolen bases. There's a batting average difference, of course, that we have to account for. But he's a solid mid-$20 player. He's right around Jackie Bradley level, but we hear oceans of commentary about what a great year Jackie Bradley's having. Nobody mentions Rajai Davis, maybe because he's been around so long. I'm not sure. Uh, who's your National League stud? Well, I was going to go with Marte. We, we talked a lot about Marte, so I'm going to say Marte, and we kind of gave the reasons to reinforce how much I'm into Starling Marte. Switching around to the duds, let's go back to the American League. Who's a dud hitter, a guy you want no part of on any of your rosters? I don't know if this is going to come as a surprise, but I'm going to I think I'm going to use Nomar Mazzara. I, I think people are don't realize that he doesn't have the power that people think he does. Uh, you know, he's good for a rookie, but you know, I I, th- I, I kind of expect him to have 15 or 16 homers at this point, and I think he's still in the single digits. So I, I think there's a, a perception that he's you know he's good, but I think there's a perception that he's better than he really is. Uh, I think he's going to sit a little bit more in the second half against lefties. And quite frankly, we haven't seen what he can do in the Texas heat over 162 games. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, and I don't know for sure, 
But I don't know. Spidey sensed that no more Mazzara might not have as good of a second half as he did a first half. And he's already had a, a little bit of a of a slowdown after that sensational start. Uh, the last few weeks, he's he's been batting in the. 200, 211 for a week. He was batting 071 for a week there. So he has started to struggle, and there's always that issue, and we talk about it all the time, and it's almost cliche, but once through the league, the word starts getting around. Here's how you get this guy out, and it seems like a lot of pitchers are figuring that out. Right, and I think as a lefty, uh, you know, I think he could, he was doing fairly well. I mean, he's sitting against lefties, but there, there's, you know, will, will, will teams start to use their lefty specialist against Mazzara, uh, and and that you know the, the, the he uh, Texas had a couple of other lefties, you know if I'm Texas if, I, if I'm another team, I want my lefty in against Mazzara. I don't want him in against Fielder anymore. Um, I don't want him in against Moreland. I want him in against Mazzara. So I think he may be seeing more loogies as well. In the National League, who's a dud hitter for you? <sighs> this was tough because I I don't want it to be true. And a lot of it is more just, again, the goofy Spidey sense than anything else. It just does not look like Andrew McCutcheon's year. And I said, I've said that before. It may have even been to you last time we talked. I don't recall. Uh, he's just sort of been my go-to guy. And then he'll go out and get a two-for-four two night. And, you know, by the time I look again, it, it's just, it just does not look like Kutch's year, which is one reason, as we talked about before, Pittsburgh isn't doing as well. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, he's going to be interesting next year where he goes as well because he's already starting to fall out of favor because he's not running. So, now if he's not also hitting for power, you know, McCutcheon's just another guy at this point. Andrew McCutcheon has been a disappointment. He's batting 241. His on-base percentage is just a little over 300. Uh, the 12 home runs look okay, I guess, but only two stolen bases, Todd. I think you're, you're on to something here. Uh, let's move over to the mound. And uh, who's your stud pitcher in the American League? Well, I'm going to go a little – well, actually, I'm going to stay in the same team. I'm going to stay with Cleveland uh, as Rajay Davis. And, man, you know, Corey Kluber is one of those guys that just – I mean – He's not as baffling as some guys, but you know he'll, he'll, he either outpitches his ERA or, or underpitches his ERA. He never seems to nail it, and I just I just love the peripherals. I love the stuff, and I think I think especially in American League only, where there's so much questions about some of these pitchers, you know, if I'm looking to make a move in an AL only league, and Kluber is available, to me he could be the biggest difference maker on an American League staff over the second half, and I think a mixed league staff as well. So, uh, you know, the uh, you know as, as our friend Steve Moyer likes to call them, fantasy darlings, you know, I'll go to our old fantasy darling, Corey Kluber. And, uh, of course, the whole team of destiny thing is way overrated, but Cleveland <laughs> does look really sharp this year, which uh, augurs well for him, but it might make him a little tougher to acquire in, uh, in many leagues because yeah. people are waiting for the turnaround. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. That that's true. It may be easier in a mixed league, uh, absolutely. But um, you know, he he costs you know he costs a good amount of money. So you know, if it's a keeper league and you know someone paid a lot of money for Kluber and, and they're not competing, he might be available in a keeper league. And like I said, he is the kind of guy that if I'm in a go for it mode, you know, I'll give up I'll give up a young American League pitcher, you know, giving up part of my future uh, to get to get the rest of the year for Corey Kluber. And in the National League, who's the stud pitcher that you like? This is, you know, kind of going the other direction, saying a guy that I think is going to emerge. I don't know for sure, obviously, but I really, really like what Drew Pomeranz has done. Uh, we all like to see that one skill away. If this guy could just walk fewer hitters, he would do, be something. I don't think we can 
you know, I'm actually doing a piece next week. Um, hopefully we can talk about it down the line on how ballparks are playing this year and, and how we, if we can assume they're real or not. Petco is playing, you know, a lot less uh, pitcher friendly, but it's still a good ballpark to pitch in. I just, I really like what I'm seeing out of Pomeranz. And man, if the guy could just shave some of those walks down, I think we're talking about an NL stud. <laughs> and if my grandma had wheels, she'd have been a bicycle. Uh, is yeah, and if I didn't eat as much pizza, I'd be skinny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving to the dud side of the ledger in the American League, who's a dud pitcher you want no part of? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm I'm, ba- I'm still going to go with Dallas Keuchel. He's shown me a little bit more than he than he did, but I still I still hear people think he's going to re- completely return to form, and I I I've seen like I said I've seen a little more as far as strikeout and fewer walks, but I still don't think he's the guy that people think he is, and he's not a guy I want to acquire uh, for the second half. Although you can pretty much depend that Dallas Keuchel is probably going to be available in a lot of leagues because of the expectation that he's going to turn things around. And then there's this, this guy named Drew Smiley, too, who can't get off of him. I just, um, I probably should, especially after last night, but... I guess I, I guess I'm still, man. You know, someone says, "Who would you rather have, Keuchel or Smiley?" I might be the only one that says Smiley. You know, now to look at it again, I could have even I could have even said Jordan Zimmerman is the guy, but I think he's hurt, so I think that I think that's why I didn't use him. But man, if if, if someone were to challenge me and say, "Okay, I, you know, you've got Keuchel, I'll give you Smiley for him," wow, I'd have to think about that. His 5.02 ERA is about a run and a half over his expected ERA at baseballhq.com. So there might be some room for improvement. And if you could, get, it's 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 always the same thing, isn't it, Todd? It depends on what the price is being asked. If you somebody offers you Dallas Keuchel and you say, "Who do you want?" and you can live with it, yeah, you could do worse. But I think he's still a dud. Yeah, it's still relative. And is it he he's he actually some of the things I was holding against him, he has improved in the past even two or three or four weeks but um if Zimmerman hadn't gotten hurt I probably would have used him and I actually thought Zimmerman would be okay this year and I don't know who knows how much of this has been the injury I didn't think he'd be quite you know I know I know what he started out with was was not the way he was going to end up but I thought the landing point was higher than some people thought and you know so you know he would have been the answer but I don't want to use a guy that's hurt you know, on a question like this, that's too easy. And finally, a National League dud pitcher? It's a little bit of what I talked about with Mazzara, and we haven't seen Kenta Maeda for a whole year. And, you know, teams are seeing him. You know, you mentioned pitchers adjusting to Maeda, te- uh, to Mazzara. Teams will adjust to Maeda. And I just, I'm curious, you know, the workload situation, the travel, we'll see how these things impact uh, the the guy over the second half, I I would be a little bit leery because he's working on such small margin of error that you know he's the kind of guy that if he loses just a little bit of control, loses just a little bit of movement, gonna get hit. So I'd be a little. I mean, it's it's almost a. I don't I don't. It's not the numbers aren't showing me he's gonna be a dud. It's just um if I had him, I'd be worried that we're gonna see some. Uh, drop down in performance over the second half and I think that might make him uh, a, a target for next year because he will have gone through a whole season knows how to deal with it more and his season log numbers will be you know if, if this narrative is correct be brought down by his second half and I think we you know may not happen again next year but yeah if I had my you know if, if I have my eight I may have him cheap 
So if I'm on a keeper team, I'm not afraid to give up Kenta Maeda to get a better pitcher to help me down the road. You know, I'm not as concerned about giving up the keeper value on Maeda uh, if I'm trying to win my NL only league. Todd Zola's studs, Rajai Davis of Cleveland, Starling Marte of Pittsburgh, Corey Kluber of Cleveland, and Drew Pomeranz of San Diego. Uh, Todd's duds are Nomar Mazzara of Texas, Andrew McCutcheon of Pittsburgh. There's your headline. Dallas Koikel of Houston and Kenta Maeda of the Dodgers. Uh, Todd, as always, this has been a real treat. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Todd Zola. Well, let me say, too, that, Patrick, you're, you're, you're always my podcast stud, so that there, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no denying that. Uh, Masters Ball, is, 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 as you mentioned, is the mothership. Uh, can be found on Rotowire, and I do the uh, I do some you know free work for ESPN. So if you're you know curious about pitching and hitting matchups, uh, can be found on on ESPN as well, and on Twitter at Todd Zola. I don't I don't hit every single question, but if somebody uh, if somebody uh, hashtags the podcast, I will answer your question. If you, if you let us know that you heard this podcast, I'll answer your question. Great. And uh, your Twitter feed, which is a, a really tremendous Twitter feed, at Todd Zola? That's it. Yeah, you may get a couple of dumb jokes now and again, but I do sneak some baseball in as well. When you said uh, f- you do free stuff for ESPN, you mean it's free for the users, not free for you giving it to them? Ah, yeah, well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It was one of the what's the, you know I don't know if it's an oxymoron, but it's like an old Stephen Light right joke. You know how come you get paid for freelance, right? I I do what they call in the daily notes. So for for the seven days of the week, uh, I write the daily notes column, and it's designed for you know it can be used in DFS, it can be used in leagues with daily moves, and I try to put enough information in there so that you know the analysis I'm using for a pitcher isn't just necessarily for that day it can be applied to your own league if you're looking to make a trade so even though more often than not it's angled for daily you know daily leagues i try to be you know i want everybody to read it i don't i don't play dfs i'm not going to read zola's column i want to put enough nuggets in there to make people want to read it even for their seasonal leagues and I can vouch for that. I read Todd Zola anytime I'm doing my fantasy planning daily or season length. Todd, uh, once again, been an absolute delight to talk with you. I can't wait till we do it again in a few weeks' time. Right, and uh, just, just got the confirmation I'll be at first pitch, and I know you'll be there too, and so we'll get to do this in person out in November by the fire pit. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. One of our favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio and is a terrific Twitter follow, at Todd Zola, Z-O-L-A. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why I keep calling it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. I was just over looking at the site today. We have playing time today looking at the Matt Carpenter injury and many other stories. Playing time tomorrow looks at the National League West. Brad Ziegler's possible departure from the Diamondbacks, opening up some closer and save opportunities in the desert. And the GM's office looks at the Baseball HQ staff survey for July of 2016, a bunch of different questions, and a whole bunch more tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Tigers AA closer Joe Jimenez is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. Despite yet another offseason overhaul, the Detroit Tigers' bullpen remains one of the most inconsistent in baseball. 
Closer Francisco Rodriguez has been solid and has converted 23 of 25 save opportunities, but Mark Lowe, Justin Wilson, and the rest of the Tigers' pen have been largely ineffective and collectively have a 4.44 ERA. Surprisingly, the Tigers have not been able to address this long-standing problem with homegrown talent, despite investing heavily in power arms over the past decade. One player who could help stabilize the situation is AA closer Joe Jimenez. The 21-year-old Jimenez went undrafted out of high school in Puerto Rico, but has the type of power arm needed to close games in the majors. Jimenez comes after hitters with a plus mid-90s fastball that tops out at 99 miles an hour with good late life and backs it up with a plus hard slider to form a devastating 1-2 punch. In 31 relief appearances, Jimenez has punched out 55 batters to go along with 17 saves in a minuscule 0.28 ERA. Jimenez can be a bit wild at times and has walked 10 batters in 31 innings, but he is also striking out more than 15 batters per nine and has a 1.14 batting average against. While other playoff contenders will be in the market for high-priced proven relievers, the Tigers could receive some much-needed help from down on the farm. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. BaseballHQ.com subscribers really get the winner's edge with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. We have scouting reports, updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups. Like this week looking at Tyler Glasnow. Nick and I talked about him earlier in the National League Market Watch. Texas right-hander Jose Leclerc has been called up. So has Pittsburgh left-handed starter Stephen Brault. Got a call-up to take Jamison Tyon's spot as Tyon heads to the DL. A lot of prospects coming up and down these days. If you need to know about it to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has all the information you need. Now it's time for our playing time segment, situations that could mean players getting a little more playing time or maybe losing some. In this week's edition, we'll look at possible trade deadline fallout in San Diego and Oakland. And here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. As we hit mid-July, it's a prudent move for fantasy owners to start speculating on buyers and sellers at this season's trade deadline. The moves can have significant impacts, not only for the players switching teams, but for their replacements as well. We saw this last week in San Diego, where Fernando Rodney was dealt to Miami, which created a two-horse race for saves between Brandon Maurer and Ryan Buckter. Maurer converted the club's first post-Rodney save opportunity this past week, and he seems to have the inside track on the roll despite a 567 surface CRA. We thought that might be a roadblock to earning the gig, but Maurer's underlying skills have been much better. He has an 11.1 strikeouts per nine and 389 expected ERA. Maurer's control is is an issue as he's thrown fewer first pitch strikes, but the skills might be good enough for him to hold on to the roll throughout the second half. Buckter, on the other hand, has been excellent all season in his first MLB season with a 2.68 ERA and 54 strikeouts in just 37 innings of work. Like Maurer, Buckter also has some control issues, and while his 55% fly ball rate hasn't burned him yet, it's something to monitor going forward. For now, expect Maurer to get the lion's share of opportunities, but Buckter's worth a speculation should Maurer struggle. Over to the American League, we head to Oakland, where the club appears to be entering selling mode as well this July. Rich Hill is almost sure to be dealt, and rumors are swirling that Sonny Gray, Ryan Madsen, or perhaps Sean Doolittle could be next if he can pass a physical. Jock Thompson wrote up Oakland's bullpen prospects in a playing time tomorrow column this week on BaseballHQ.com, where he landed on Ryan Dull as an emerging closer option should Oakland be active in the trade market. 
Dahl has a 2.06 ERA with an excellent 46 strikeouts in 44 innings. And though he's benefited from some good fortune, his 136 base performance value or BPV is very much closer worthy as Dahl's able to miss bats and frequently get ahead in the count. With only John Axford and his 5.24 ERA in the way, Ryan Dahl looks to be a profitable bullpen speculation entering the second half. There are numerous other teams to track heading into the trade deadline. San Diego probably isn't done, especially in the outfield, while Arizona may be looking to trade free agents to be Brad Ziegler and or Daniel Hudson at the back end of their bullpen. We'll have updates for you all month in playing time today and playing time tomorrow columns at BaseballHQ.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we use BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they might be there in your free agent pool, and if you grab them, you could get some nice returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Milwaukee third baseman Will Middlebrooks and San Francisco reliever Ray Black, and here to tell you why is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. It's middle of the 2016 season, so what better time for Milwaukee to call up Will Middlebrooks? In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll profile two players, a hitter, Will Middlebrooks, and a pitcher who will definitely put your team in the black. That's right, we're talking about San Francisco reliever Ray Black. But first, the trade of Aaron Hill to Boston on Thursday, July 7th, has created a full-time opportunity at third base in Milwaukee. Signed by the Brewers as a free agent last season, Will Middlebrooks created quite a stir in fantasy circles in 2013 after batting 288 with 15 home runs and 4 steals in only 75 games as a rookie for the Boston Red Sox. But Will Middlebrooks broke his right wrist in a game against Cleveland on August 10, 2012, effectively ending his rookie season. Nevertheless, heading into 2013 with his wrist fully healed, Will Middlebrooks was somewhat of a hot commodity in drafts. But something wasn't quite right. Will Middlebrooks saw his average drop 61 points from 288 in 2012 to only 227 in 2013. He did hit 17 home runs in 2013, though. Then things got even worse for Will Middlebrooks in 2014. Despite being tagged as Boston's opening day third baseman, Will Middlebrooks saw his batting average tumble from 227 in 2013 to only 191 in 2014, leading to an offseason trade with San Diego after the Red Sox signed former Giants third baseman Pablo Sandoval. Although he hit nine home runs for the Padres in 83 games in 2015, his 212 batting average in San Diego wasn't going to cut it. Fast forward to 2016, what's changed? His swing! Apparently now the 27-year-old infielder feels much more confident with his swing after making some adjustments this season. The result? Will Middlebrooks is now batting 282 with 10 home runs, including three grand slams, a new Colorado Springs Sky Sox single-season record, plus five steals in 2016. Just remember that Will Middlebrooks, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league. Even so, Will Middlebrooks appears to be on the road to redemption following his July 4th promotion to the Milwaukee Brewers. 
Speaking of the road to redemption, 26-year-old San Francisco reliever Ray Black had Tommy John surgery in high school, then a torn labrum in 2012. Even though in 2012 doctors reportedly gave him a 33% chance of pitching again, four years later, Ray Black is better than ever, literally. So why are we talking about a double-A relief pitcher with a 528 ERA so far in 2016? After all, Ray Black had a 10-24 ERA and 11 appearances in May for the AA Richmond Flying Squirrels. Is it because the Giants ranked second, behind the Miami Marlins, in save opportunities so far in 2016, but have only converted 61% of those opportunities? 25 saves and 41 opportunities, yet San Francisco is still in first place. To be fair, Santiago Casilla has accounted for 20 of those 25 saves, and Casilla has has a saves conversion rate of 83%, far better than the 61% team saves conversion rate of San Francisco's bullpen. So, once again, if Giants closer Santiago Casilla has been solid and the Giants are in first place, why are we talking about Ray Black, a double-A pitcher with a 1-4 record and a 528 ERA in 2016? Maybe it's because of his 104-mile-per-hour fastball. That's right. The only other pitcher to reportedly be throwing with that kind of velocity in the past five years, majors or minors, is Aroldis Chapman. Good thing Ray Black's changeup is only 99 miles per hour. You gotta give batters a chance. Sure, Ray Black had an ERA over 10 in May, but since then he's only allowed one earned run in 12 appearances in June and July for a .9 ERA since his May implosion. Ray Black's dominance rate for 2016 is a whopping 15.5 strikeouts per nine, effectively doubling our seven strikeouts per nine benchmark for elite pitchers. Yet, despite his exceptional strikeout rate, Ray Black has struggled with his command. Ray Black's 1.79 strikeouts-to-walks ratio is well below our 2.5 or better benchmark, indicating that he still has some work to do. But your work is effectively done, if you consider adding Will Middlebrooks and Ray Black, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a frequent Flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. If you hear about a pitcher rated 1.0 or higher, he's a strong bet for you to start. Under minus one, a strong bet for you to sit. In between the ones, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. We have four weekend matchups again for you this week, including struggling Oakland rookie left-hander Sean Manea in Houston to square off against struggling Astros right-handed veteran Dallas Koichel. And here with the scoop on all four matchups, BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. We're going to do something a little different for the final weekend before the All-Star Game in San Diego. We're going to look at both of the weekend matchups in two series. A National League West Series in L.A. between the Dodgers and the San Diego Padres, and an American League West Series in Houston between the Astros and the Oakland Athletics. First, the venues. Houston's Minute Maid Park tips a bit to the hitter-friendly side of the scale, increasing left-handed batters' home runs by 22% and right-handed batters' home runs by 12% while playing neutral for run production. L.A.'s Dodger Stadium is more on the pitcher-friendly side of the scale, increasing left-handed batters' home runs by 15%, but suppressing run production by 10%. Now, let's look at our American League matchup. The struggling Oakland Athletics will have their hands full with the high-flying Houston Astros. 
No team has a better record over its past 20 or 30 games than Houston, as the Astros have surged into second place in the National League West and the American League wildcard race. At home, Houston is nine games over 500, and against teams under 500, the Astros are 10 games over 500. Only two teams have worse records than the A's over their past 30 games, and overall, Oakland is 13 games under 500, one game out of the National League West cellar. Against teams over 500, the A's are 10 games under 500. The Astros are the clear favorites over the A's. On Saturday, it'll be right-handers Kendall Graveman and Lance McCullers opposing one another. Graveman has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 147, and his past five PQS scores are two threes and three twos. Prior to that, he had five PQS disasters in his previous eight starts. Opponents are hitting 289 against Graveman, and with his control rate of 3.2 walks per nine innings pitched, it's no wonder his whip is 150. His expected ERA is 456, and his base performance value is 51. To use him is to dig your own grave, man. McCullers has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 038. His calling card is a swinging strike rate of 14% for a dominance rate of 11.2 strikeouts per nine innings. Unfortunately, McCullers also sports a control rate of 5.1 walks per nine innings, supported by a first-pitch strike rate of only 57%. So his whip of 157 is mostly his own doing. McCullers does have a hit rate of 38%, so it's not all his fault, but even with both his hit rate and his control rate working against him, he still owns an ERA of 357 and a BPV of 100. Given the weaknesses of both the opposing team and the opposing pitcher, McCullers is a go this weekend. On Sunday, rookie southpaw Sean Manaya faces 2015 Cy Young Award winner Dallas Keuchel in a <coughs> battle of left-handers with recommended sit matchup ratings. As you might expect, Manaya's matchup rating is worse than Keuchel's, but only by a little, minus 133 to minus 120. Reviewing June performances, BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher's buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickran noted that Manaya quote, posted the highest swinging strike rate of any American League starting pitcher that month, and he paired it with an elite 67% first pitch strike rate. With two off-speed strikeout pitches in his arsenal, Manaya has the goods to develop into an impact starting pitcher. Improving his command against right-handed bats is the missing piece, unquote. With BPVs of 72 in May and 107 in June, Manaya may be improving rapidly, but correcting those platoon splits will take a while. You'll want to own him if you can get him, but you may not want to start him this weekend. And oh, how the mighty have fallen. Fantasy owners expecting an elite ace have been painfully disappointed in Keuchel, who has an ERA of 502 and a whip of 140. But he has an expected ERA of 362, a first pitch strike rate of 64%, a ground ball rate of 58%, and a BPV of 103. He may not be that elite ace, but he's all right, and Oakland should be just the tonic to set him on the road to recovery. In the National League matchup, things also look good for the home team, known here as the Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles. They may not be able to catch the Giants, but at least they lead the National League wildcard race. Overall, San Diego is 11 games under 500. On the road, it's 6 games under 500. Against teams over 500, it's 14 games under 500. Over their past 20 and 30 games, the Padres are right around 500. Over their past 20 and 30 games, the Dodgers are at and above 600. Against teams under 500, LA is 14 games over 500. At home, the Dodgers are 10 games over 500, and overall, they're 9 games over 500. 
L.A. has a big edge over San Diego. On Saturday, San Diego's rule fiver from St. Louis, right-hander Luis Perdomo, gets a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 119 against the Dodgers. Perdomo has bounced between the bullpen and the starting rotation for the Padres. In six starts, lasting 29 and one-third innings, he's allowed 22 earned runs and walked 10. Perdomo has had a triple whammy hit rate of 42%, strand rate of 61%, and home run per fly ball rate of 24%. But his control rate of four walks per nine innings hasn't helped either. This recommended sit matchup rating is definitely one to follow. After 14 months and two weeks spent recovering from Tommy John surgery, and now all of one major league start last week, Brandon McCarthy gets the second highest matchup rating of the weekend at 230. He showed career-high velocity and struck out eight Rockies in five innings at Chavez Ravine, walking only one. But his four-game, 13-inning rehab assignment wasn't as impressive, resulting in seven earned runs. So beware the small sample size warning and bump him down to a risk-reward wildcard play. After three PQS dominant starts and two PQS disasters in his first six outings, lefty Christian Friedrich has averaged a PQS 1 in his past four efforts, allowing 19 earned runs in 21 innings pitched. His expected ERA is 4.64, and his worst enemy is his own control rate of 4.4 walks per nine innings pitched. Despite that original run contributing to his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 0.50, it's more likely opposing batters will be the ones having a walk in the park this Sunday, so you don't want to go along for the ride with Friedrich. 28-year-old, 155-pound Dodger right-hander Kenta Maeda packs a lot of punch in his five-pitch arsenal with plenty of movement and good location. He carries a near-recommended start matchup rating of 097 into his Sunday start. With two of his past three starts PQS disasters, there may be some concern here, but it looks more like home run per fly ball bad luck. In his three PQS disaster starts, Maeda has allowed five of his nine home runs. He's allowed only four home runs in his other 14 outings. Over his past 10 starts, he's had four PQS dominant efforts. And in six of those starts, he's allowed no more than two earned runs. No reason to be overly cautious with Maeda this Sunday. So as you use this weekend to prepare for your post-All-Star break run, you can confidently start Lance McCullers and Kenta Maeda. And perhaps take reasoned risks on Sean Manaya, Dallas Keuchel, and Brandon McCarthy. But heed the sit recommendations for Kendall Graveman and Luis Perdomo. And stay away from Christian Friedrich as well. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com who has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about Ryan Quality Starts, Revisited. A year or so ago in this space, I fulminated at length about how the wins categories bites Heine and how fantasy baseball would be much better off if we went to the Ryan quality start, seven innings with three earned runs or fewer. The fantasy baseball world was inspired to a mass movement of ignoring me and leaving things exactly as they were. But absolute and total humiliating rejection has never stopped me, so I've always kept the idea of the RQS, as I've come to call it, in the back of my mind, along with old Astronomy 100 formulas, where I left the keys to my 1969 Datsun 510, and other important things. The point here is that I was thinking about RQS the other day when it suddenly occurred to me that one thing I liked about it as a replacement for wins as a category is that 
there are roughly as many RQS as pitcher wins, and that got me to wondering if RQS could serve as an indicator or predictor of wins. I was particularly curious if there are many pitchers who've been getting lots of wins without a lot of RQS, in which case we could infer those pitchers have an overabundance of good fortune wins-wise and might suffer a potential balancing shortfall of wins later in the season. On the other hand, we might find pitchers with lots of RQS without getting their share of wins, and we might reasonably expect those pitchers to have their luck come around and have them collect some extra wins later in the season. The first thing I did was collect all the 2016 pitcher start data from BaseballHQ.com's PQS charts. You can download the entire season for each league as an Excel-readable file, and that's just what I did. 2,460 pitcher starts in 2016 through Sunday. I first looked at some big picture questions. Not what is the meaning of life type questions, just basic numbers about quality starts, Ryan quality starts, and wins. Here's the basic skinny. About 48% of all starts are quality starts, but only 22% of all starts are Ryan quality starts, remembering that RQS are also QS. 55% of all quality starts resulted in wins. 64% of all RQS resulted in wins, so a slightly higher percentage. In fact, the same win percentage as PQS dominant starts rated 4 or 5 on the 5-point scale. Finally, only 25% of non-RQS starts resulted in wins. Next, I looked at the 181 individual pitchers who have at least five starts this year. Only five of them had no quality starts at all, but 34 of them had no Ryan quality starts, and this was the first hint to me that RQS was definitely separating the wheat from the chaff. And unlike the old journalist joke about newsroom editors, keeping the wheat. Next, a ranking of percentages further connected higher RQS to better starters. The list of guys with at least 70% quality starts included 27 different names. Many of the elite guys you'd expect made the list at that 70% level, but the list also included James Shields, Matt Wisler, and Colby Lewis, hardly the elite. By contrast, the list of pitchers with 70% Ryan quality starts ends after Clayton Kershaw and Chris Sale. Extending the list down to 50% RQS still only gets us 14 names. But what names they are? Johnny Cueto, Tanner Rourke, John Lester, Max Scherzer, Corey Kluber, Jake Arrieta, Julio Terran, Aaron Sanchez, Noah Syndergaard, Stephen Wright, Trevor Bauer, and Felix Hernandez. Starting to sound a lot more elite. Seems again that with Ryan quality starts, the cream rises to the top. To employ another agricultural cliché. All these guys are $20 pitchers in most leagues, and even without any further analysis, I think I'll be targeting Bauer and Tehran. But there was one other analytical step I wanted to take. Given that 64% of RQS are wins, I thought any starting pitcher should have had wins in about that percentage of his Ryan quality starts, and pitchers should have had wins in only about 25% of their non-RQS starts. Among the aforementioned top pitchers, several were underperforming the 60% expected win percentage. Tanner Rourke, Corey Kluber, and Julio Terran. Madison Bumgarner, who actually does not have a stellar RQS percentage, nonetheless has been unfortunate in winning only three of his seven RQS. The top wins getters in non-RQS starts, these are the guys who are overachieving, included Rich Hill at 60%, Josh Tomlin at 60%, Danny Salazar at 67%, 
Cleveland fans getting worried at all? Jordan Zimmerman at 70% and Steven Strasburg at a whopping 73%. Remember, the overall percentage of wins in non-RQS starts is just 25%, so it seems like these guys have been enjoying some good fortune that might not be dependable. Indeed, we've already seen Jordan Zimmerman start to slide overall since an excellent 8-for-10 win streak to open the season, despite only four Ryan-quality starts, six of his eight wins so far, non-RQS. I ended up with two takeaways from this research effort. First, while this concept needs more detailed examination, it looks like it might have some potential for identifying pitchers who are getting too few wins or too many wins on a game-by-game basis. And second, it looks like it has the potential to identify underrated good starting pitchers in general, like Rourke, Terran, and Sanchez, and possibly to identify overrated guys like Hill, Tomlin, and Zimmerman. Of course, there are obvious external factors that clearly affect win totals. It's one of the reasons I hate them so much. Tehran's Atlanta teammates barely produce three and a half runs a game. The Mets in Philadelphia are also below 4.0 runs per game. Meanwhile, Boston produces 5.7 runs per game, making David Price's league average 64% look kind of low. And the Cubs, Cardinals, Rockies, and Baltimore also push five or more runs across per game. And bullpens vary widely in caliber as well. The major league average for inherited runners scoring is 32%, but that's in a range from just 15%, Houston, to 44%. That's the New York Yankees, and ain't that a surprise? Cincinnati has lost 21 games in relief, Toronto and Atlanta close behind at 19, while Kansas City has lost just five. And the Cubs, Baltimore, St. Louis, San Diego, and Detroit are all under 10 losses in relief. Finally, if you aren't convinced or intrigued by back-of-the-envelope research like this, remember that BaseballHQ.com now has a relatively new expected wins metric in its toolkit for starting pitchers. Developed by Matt Cederholm, expected wins adapts the Bill James Pythagorean theorem, which determines a team's expected wins by using its runs scored and runs allowed. Matt's insight was to replace the team's runs allowed with the pitcher's runs allowed, that is, his ERA. It's a peach. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Masternotes is also available Saturday morning at the website for free. And of course, we have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32, our all-star break edition of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show from Masters Ball, Roto-Wire and ESPN, Todd Zola is a great guy, one of our favorite guests and always full of interesting insights into fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. 
I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And send us messages on our email address, BHQRadio, all one word, at gmail.com. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating because it really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with a regular show next Friday when our guest expert will be Mike Podhorzer of the Rotographs blog at Fangraphs.com. And don't miss our Tuesday special edition coming up on All-Star Game Day, Tuesday, July the 12th. We'll have some Baseball HQ commentators plus Todd Zola and me, and we'll be discussing our picks for the most valuable pitcher and hitter in fantasy baseball in the first half, some sleeper picks for the second half, a bust or two for both halves, and some interesting conversation. That's this Tuesday, All-Star Game Day, July the 12th, in a special edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.